Greetings and welcome to episode 3 of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. My name is Derek V. Trout, and it's my pleasure to have you join me today for episode 3 to discuss The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Yes, today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to venture away from the screen and go to the print as we examine the theological concepts and things of significance within the Martian Chronicles. But first, let me tell you a little something more about myself as we continue to get to know each other. You know that I'm a fan of theology and science fiction, that's why I'm here, and that's why I'm passionate about these two subjects, so that's what joins this podcast here today. But I'm passionate about other things, uh, some more serious than others. And something I really enjoy in life is sports. I love to watch and especially play sports. I particularly enjoy watching football and basketball, and I enjoy playing literally anything. Basketball, softball, ultimate frisbee, golf, soccer, bowling roller skating, disc golf, whatever it is, I enjoy them all. I think they're fun. Uh, I'm a sports fan in general, but I'm particularly a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I was a Steelers fan growing up there, and I still am today. In the NBA, I'm a Utah Jazz fan. How did that happen to a kid from PA? Well, growing up in the 90s, it seemed everyone rooted for Michael Jordan, and rightfully so. I mean, he's the best basketball player of all time, but, but I didn't want to root for who everyone else was rooting for. So I was looking for a team, and I loved the way that John Stockton and Carl Malone of the Utah Jazz played basketball with their grit and defense and pick-and-roll offense, and I need to be careful here. This might turn into a sports podcast. Uh, but actually, um, if I were to start a podcast other than this one, well, I have some ideas that may actually happen for about three more podcasts, so I'm not going to talk about that. But if I were to start a podcast that I don't actually plan on maybe someday starting, at some point, it would be a sports podcast. Uh, but I think that's a bit of a, a landscape that is saturated and probably doesn't need another voice, certainly not not my voice, I don't think, but but I think that would be fun. I, I think that would be something that I would enjoy, but I'm a sports fan, and here's just one more thing to show you my fandom. So the past couple of weeks have been sports travel weeks for me. On Monday, January 3rd, I drove to Pittsburgh with my two kids and met my dad and brother-in-law and two of my nephews in the Berg to go to Heinz Field and watch the Steelers in their final home game of the season. So I drove out there on Monday, and then I drove back to Indiana on Tuesday. Went out for some dinner and a game and came back in, in a day's trip. And then on Saturday, January 8th, I was in Indianapolis to watch the one game a year where the Jazz come to play the Pacers. So as you can see, I'm a bit of a sports fan, maybe a bit of a fanatic sometimes, and I really do enjoy that. And uh, I thought that would be something interesting to share with you, especially with some recent travel that I've had and just showing my fandom. And just one more thing about me as we continue to get to know each other as time goes on. So let's dive into the episode, and to do that, uh, focusing on Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, I want to tell you a little bit about who Ray Bradbury was, the author of this book. If you're a fan of science fiction, especially classic science fiction, or what's sometimes been known as the golden age of sci-fi, if you're a fan of that, you should be very familiar with the name and the works of Ray Bradbury. He's probably best known for his 1953 novel titled Fahrenheit 451 a great book that I remember reading as a young teen and having a great admiration for. Now, the world of Fahrenheit 451 is not a world that I would want to live in. Eh, it just is scary because maybe sometimes we are getting a little closer to that world. But nonetheless, I've admired that book for years. And, and I think it would be a great work to examine on this podcast sometime, a great candidate for that. So, so maybe that'll be coming in the future sometime. But if you're looking to watch screen adaptions of Bradbury's work, you can check out the Ray Bradbury Theater. This was an anthology series that ran for two seasons on HBO in the mid-80s and for four additional seasons from the late 80s to the early 90s. And of the time of this recording, it's available on Amazon Prime Video. 
So if you have that, you can go check out the Ray Bradbury Theater. Anyway, back to Bradbury. He was born in 1920 and passed away in 2012. Upon his passing, the New York Times called Bradbury the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. So I think it's fitting that we have our first novel-based episode focused on Bradbury's work. He wrote 27 novels and over 600 short stories, and often used religious themes and references in his work, often writing about Christ figures. However, he did not consider himself to be a Christian. He described himself one time as a delicatessen religionist. According to our good friend, the Google machine, a delicatessen is a store selling cold cuts, cheeses, and a variety of salads, as well as a selection of unusual or foreign prepared foods. Sounds like my kind of place. But what I believe that Bradbury meant by saying that he was a delicatessen religionist is that he looked at religion and took the bits and pieces that he liked. Just like you would do if you were at a salad bar at a restaurant, you would go and you would pick all the things that you would like and you would leave the rest. I think that's what Bradbury did with religions. He picked bits and pieces and beliefs from religions that he liked and he left the rest behind. If that's the case, then Bradbury was well ahead of his time, so to speak, because this picking and choosing of different parts from different religions that you like and ignoring the rest is a common practice in America today, where we have some people that pick little pieces that they're going to follow from different places and think that all paths lead to the same destination when it comes to religion, but they do not. Bradbury, in a 2010 CNN interview uh, that you can easily find online, said, I'm a Zen Buddhist, if I would describe myself. I don't think about what I do. I do it. That's Buddhism. I jump off the cliff and build my wings on the way down. Now, I don't know much about Zen Buddhism, I, I admit, but that is what Bradbury said about it. and thought that was interesting, the way that he described himself and the religion that he was. However, there's something also that Bradbury said, and I know that he was wrong about this. He considered Jesus just to be a wise prophet like Buddha or Confucius, but he, he did not believe Jesus to be the Son of God. He didn't believe that he was the divine Son of God. Bradbury said, Jesus is a remarkable person. He was on his way to becoming Christ, and he made it. Well, sorry, Mr. Bradbury, but that is wrong. Jesus is the divine Son of God, eternal in his existence, eternally the Son of God. He didn't have to grow into Christ or have a process to become the Messiah or the Savior or Son of God. He was the Christ before the foundations of creation were put in place. And uh, what I also have a huge problem with here is that Bradbury saying that Jesus was, was just a wise prophet, like Buddha or, or Confucius, but, but many people say that today. Many people say that Jesus was just a good man or a good teacher or he, he taught us moral lessons. He was a good person, but he wasn't really the son of God. But actually, Jesus doesn't give us the option to say that he was only a wise teacher and nothing more. C.S. Lewis explained this best when, when he said what's become known as Lewis's trilemma. Now, a trilemma means a choice between three options. A dilemma is a choice between two, but a trilemma has a choice between three options. And Lewis argues that Jesus gives us three options for who he is. This, is. this is what Lewis said on a series of broadcasts that were later compiled into the book we know today as mere Christianity. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, 
on level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's beautiful, what Lewis said there and later compiled in the book Mere Christianity. And if you haven't read Mere Christianity, go get it and read it. Great book. I encourage you to do that. But this trilemma is also commonly sometimes known as the liar, lunatic, or lord argument, because it's kind of easy to remember all those L's. So, But what Lewis is basically saying here is that, that, that Jesus says that he is the Son of God. That's the claim that he makes. And if Jesus really isn't the Son of God, but he says that he is, then that would make him a liar. And good or wise prophets, moral teachers, are not liars. So you can't say that Jesus was just a good prophet and nothing more because he's telling us lies. And that's not a good thing. That's not something that somebody who, who is good, a good prophet would do. Or you could say that Jesus truly believed. He honestly believed that he was the Son of God. But he wasn't. In that case, that would make him a lunatic. We've seen that throughout history with other people who have claimed to be the Son of God and have a very bad track record for the things that they do and how they treat people and the impact that they have on society. But throughout the Bible and other historical sources that mention Jesus, we don't have any indication that, that he would be a lunatic, that he would be suffering some kind of mental illness or dis disorder. Jesus shows who he is through his character, attitude, and actions, and how he treats people. And people come to the conclusion on their own without being told that he is the Son of God. He is the one that's been prophesied about hundreds of years, hundreds of years before he was born. So Jesus can either be a liar can say he's the son of God and knows that he's not and is lying. He can be a lunatic. He can say that he's the son of God and truly believe it and be wrong. Or the third option that we have is that Jesus was who he said that he was, the son of God, the king of kings. So you can say a lot of things about Jesus, but saying that he's just a good or wise or moral prophet can't be said. That's not one of the options Jesus left us with. He never left that open to us. He never intended to. Lewis's trilemma. That is good. Remember that. And when we look at Jesus, we can see that if he was a good moral teacher, then he wasn't a liar. We can see those historical references and accounts. We can see that he apparently was not crazy or had some kind of mental disorder or detached from reality. So, so the option that we're left with is that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. Now, one more thing in the way of introductory comments, another quote by Bradbury that I thought was worth mentioning for the point of this podcast. I've actually had a conversation with somebody who asked the question, well, what really is science fiction? You're doing a podcast about science fiction. What really is science fiction? And here, Bradbury actually talks about what that is, or, or at least what his beliefs about what science fiction are. And here's the quote. Bradbury said, first of all, I don't write science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451 based on reality. It was named so to represent the temperature which paper ignites. Science fiction is a depiction of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So Martian Chronicles is not science fiction, it's fantasy. It couldn't happen, you see. 
So I guess according to the author of the Martian Chronicles, the Martian Chronicles is not science fiction, rather it is science fantasy. And he says that because it would appear that Bradbury believes that Martians really don't exist, so this couldn't be something based in reality. But is he right? Is Bradbury right? Is there any possibility that Martians could exist? Well, I'm going to tell you. Listen to the next episode and you'll find out the answer to that question. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to the next episode of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast, where I examine 2001, A Space Odyssey, and I will answer the question, do aliens exist? I will give you a definitive answer. Definitive answer to that question. So tune in to the next episode. It'll be released on January 28th, 2022. 2001, A Space Odyssey will be the movie that we are looking at, and I will answer the question, do aliens exist? So I hope that's a little teaser and get you to tune back in next time. But back to the task at hand, and even if it isn't for the author, Martian Chronicles is science fiction to me, and one of the premier works in this beautiful genre. All right, I think we've said enough in the way of introductory material, so let's get started with why we have gathered here today to search for truth in such simple tales as these. So let's dive into the theological ideas and themes that we see in Ray Bradbury's novel, The Martian Chronicles. Within theology, there's a number of topics to examine, and one that will often be examined in The Martian Chronicles is what we call anthropology. Now, anthropology is the study of human societies and cultures and their development. And anthropology is under the umbrella of systematic theology because one's belief about God affects their beliefs about people and how people should act and how we should treat others, and what kind of human rights or dignity or respect other people deserve. So theology is also concerned with what the relationship is and should be between people and God, but part of theology is also interested in what the relationship is and should be between people and other people. So a lot of the theological observations that come from this book will deal with who people are within that biblical understanding. Well, first of all, The Martian Chronicles, in complete novel form, was published in 1950. And on the very first page, we are told with a heading that the story begins in January of 1999. That was 49 in the years in the future at the time of publication, but is now, what, 23 years in the past? I feel old. And maybe you do too right now, but that's all right. So this uh, written 49 years in the future, but is now 23 years in the past. That's just, just, just funny to think about. But if you haven't read the Martian Chronicles, what are you doing? Pause this now. Go and buy it and read it and then come back and start listening. I found this book at a used bookstore when I lived in Ohio for, I think it was like a buck 95. And if you have a books, used bookstore in your city or, or town or a flea market or something like that that sells books where you can go there, go there and buy it. They'll probably have it. I found another copy of this when I was in Pittsburgh and at a used bookstore, and I bought it for my cousin and sent it to him to read, and I got a great deal on it. So go and support your local bookstores in your towns or communities if you have that. Or my understanding is you can also listen to an audio recording of the Martian Chronicles on YouTube or I'm sure there's some kind of audiobooks out there somehow that you can listen to if that's your preferred way to, 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 to get through books. I prefer to have the, the paper pages in my hand, to be able to, to make notes and underline things and highlight and, and do all these different things. I love having that paper copy in my hand. That's my preferred method as I go through these and I, as I, I read through other books too. So whatever works for you, I encourage you to, to read through the book or to listen to the book before listening to this. 
but the choice is yours. You can keep listening, and obviously there's going to be a plethora of spoilers to follow this, so you've been warned. I recommend reading before listening, but nonetheless, the choice is yours. So here we go. The, the first section of this book is titled Rocket Summer, and it's a great opening to, to, to this book. It's, it's just five paragraphs long, but I'm going to read for you the, the first paragraph of this, and then I'm also going to read for you the last couple paragraphs of this. And you'll get to see the beginning of this book and just how great it is. One minute, it was Ohio winter with doors closed, windows locked, the panes blind with frost. Icicles fringing every roof, children skiing on slopes, housewives lumbering like great black bears in their furs along the icy streets. Rocket summer. People leaned from their dripping porches and watched the reddening sky. The rocket lay on the launching field, blowing out pink clouds of fire and oven heat. The rocket stood in the cold winter morning, making summer with every breath of its mighty exhausts. The rocket made climates in summer lay for a brief moment upon the land. I love this opening page and this opening story here, and I think it's an incredible writing and just a prime example of showing and not telling. You can read that, and Bradbury's not not telling you what happens, but he's showing you what happens and how people respond. And, and he's showing, him showing instead of telling is what makes it come alive. And it's so good. And I love that idea that this dead Ohio winter, which I lived in Ohio, so I can understand that. And then, and then the rockets that are lifting off to space lift off with such thrust that it, it provides a few moments of summer in the, the midst of that cold winter because of how powerful the blasts are. And I just love that imagery and think it's just a great opening page and just gives you a little snippet of the great writing that is within this book. But we, what we quickly find in this book is that people are attempting to leave Earth to live on Mars. That's where the rocket is headed that we read about here in this section, Rocket Summer. It's going to Mars. But the next section is labeled February 1999 and is titled Yilla. Y-L-L-A. I'm going to pronounce that Yilla. Here we find out that the natives are Mar of, of Mars. There's Martians there. They are short. And they did, at one point they even describe a six foot one inch tall man, yeah, six foot one inch tall human as a, a a giant, a misshapen giant. And I thought that was funny that that they think we are misshapen giants. But the Martians have brownish skin and yellow coin eyes. And in this section, we focus primarily on two Martians, uh, Mister Yil K and Mrs. Yilla K. I'm just going to refer to them as Mister K and Mrs. K. So Mr. K has seen the people in the rocket uh, that, that landed, has seen the people in the rocket that landed on Mars, but she believes it to be a dream because she's never seen anything as unimaginable as a six-foot-tall, light-skinned, blue-eyed humanoid. She can't believe it. She can't believe that this kind of thing would actually exist and they would come down from a ship in the sky and land on their planet. So Mrs. K and her husband believe it to be a dream. They, they believe that this is just a dream. And an interesting side note here is that that may be able to relate to the idea of simulacra that we had and discussed in episode one about the Matrix. I don't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole now, but we've got too much other stuff to get in. But this isn't the last time you'll see this idea of simulacra, or simulacra excuse me, uh, within the uh, within the, the story here of Martian Chronicles. Anyway, this is more than just a normal dream that Mrs. K is having, it's actually a telepathic experience with those in the rocket that have not yet landed on Mars. They're just a few days away, so they're preparing 
to land and going through the procedures. And she has this telepathic connection with them so she can kind of see what they're preparing for. And that's why why she sees that. One of the most interesting things in this section that relates to human nature, though, actually comes from the Martians. Mr. K tells his wife that she needs to stay at home because they're expecting a visit from a friend, Dr. Inel. Then Mr. K puts on a mask before going out of the house. So he makes his wife stay behind because they're expecting a visit from this doctor. And he's going out. But before he goes out, he has to put on a mask. And this is what we read about Mr. K putting on the mask. He turned, and upon his face was a mask. Hammered from silver, metal, expressionless. The mask that that he always wore when he wished to hide his feelings. The mask which curved and hollowed so exquisitely to his chins, cheeks, and brow. Don't we all do that? Don't we all put on a mask to conceal who we really are? The mask that we wear when we wish to hide our feelings. When we try to hide from others. When we try to hide from God. Sometimes when we even try to hide from ourselves. But this isn't the only section about the masks. Later in the fourth, sec- fourth section of the book titled The Earthmen, this is what we read. The little town was full of people drifting in and out of doors, saying hello to one another, wearing golden masks and blue masks and crimson masks for pleasant variety. Masks with silver lips and bronze eyebrows. Masks that smiled or masks that frowned, according to the owner's disposition. The Martians on Mars aren't the only beings that do this. We do it too. You And me, us people, sure, they are not literal physical masks that we wear, but they are masks that we put on to cover up ourselves nonetheless. We try to hide our faults and shortcomings from those around us so that we can appear to be without struggles or troubles or questions or doubts or or anything wrong with us, even though that's not who we really are. We are fallen human beings who have a problem with sin, and until we get real with ourselves uh, about that, we cannot allow Jesus in our lives to take care and work on our sins and our shortcomings because Jesus is the only solution to that problem. See, sometimes we think that we need to get all cleaned up before we can come to Jesus, but that's just simply not the case. We come to Jesus and then he cleans us up. So we come to Jesus with our mess and he makes something beautiful from it. We can wear wear masks for a couple of reasons, though. We either wear masks to conceal who we are or we can wear masks to conform to who we think other people want us to be. We wear masks to make us look better than we really are, or to make us look like others so that we can fit in. In Romans 12, 2, we read this, Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. In the Martian Chronicles, it is the men and women of Mars who wear masks. In real life, however, it is the men and women of this planet who do the very same thing. I've done it and did it for years. I thought I had to show everyone how good I was, especially God. But then I would fail, do something, or get caught in a cycle of sin and put on my strong man mask to promise God I'd never do that again. And again, and again, and again, and again, I failed. I was tangled in a cycle of sin. I would wear another mask around people that would give them no indication that I was struggling or failing or just felt so inadequate. But it wasn't until I set the masks aside and told God, I can't do this. I can't be good enough. I can't be righteous on my own. I need you to do something to me that I can't do myself. And I took masks off 
as if I could hide from God anyway. And I said, God, here I am, an incredibly flawed human being. Help me. And he did. There's deliverance that can be given, not through what I have done, but through what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ, and by that manifestation of the Holy Spirit within. And then once I knew God accepted me and was working on me without my masks on, then I could start to take masks off around other people and live an authentic community with those closest to me as we do this thing called life together. But sometimes, friends, sometimes I still find myself reaching for that mask, trying to cover things up, falling back to those old habits, trying to to, to put a mask on and say, no, I'm not struggling today. No, I'm good today. No, nothing's wrong today. No, I, I, haven't, been, I haven't been facing any kind of temptation or, or any of those kinds of things. But I need a daily reminder to surrender, to take off the mask and be real with God, be real with others, and to be real with myself. This is one of the first things that I made a note on in this book to talk about, the aliens wearing masks to conceal who they are, and to conceal their feelings and what they're going through, but also that they wear masks to conform to how others look. And we as human beings do the same thing. We put on masks to hide, and we put on our best mask to conform. But we need to take them off and get real with God. This section here says something else also as who we are about humans, even though it's written about the Martians. So this section ends with Mr. K., uh, what he does is he he shoots and kills the men who land on Earth, or the, the men from Earth, because he's jealous. Mr. K, he fears that his wife, who has seen these men in a telepathic dream, he fears that she is in love with one of them, an, an astronaut who's named Nathaniel York. And, and he believes that, that she is in love with him, and he is fearful of that. And he thinks that York is going to try to take his wife back to Earth. So Mr. K kills all the the um, crew, as soon as they arrive on the planet, he kills them. That's jealousy. Something that was responsible for the first recorded murder. Cain is jealous of Abel, and the way God looks at Abel's actions and sacrifices is more pleasing because of the way the sacrifice was done and how it was done, and, and the attitude of Abel's heart. Cain is jealous of this, so he kills his brother. And we could discuss jealousy much more, but we're going to move on from that because I... We're not very far in this book, and we still have a lot more to discuss here. We're just through the first couple of sections. But I think that's interesting here, that that we see this jealousy that he has, and jealousy that is not founded in any fact or or any kind of, of, of anything that would give you any kind of proof that it would be real. But he just believes it to be that, and he acts out on that jealousy that caused him to do something terrible. In the next section... And I, I call these sections more than chapters because they don't really feel like chapters. They feel like different sections of a book, different parts of the story, or different sections of the story. So they take place at different times and are focused on different people. There are some people who make a reoccurrence in a few of these sections, but, but this isn't a typical novel that starts out with a character that we follow throughout the whole story, but it takes place over many years focusing on many different people. So that's why I call them sections more than uh, calling them chapters. Actually, many of these sections were published before the entire book of the Martian Chronicles. So, so Bradbury wrote some of them, then wrote some other ones, and then compiled those ones with some new ones to make the Martian Chronicles. So that's why I refer to these as sections and not necessarily chapters. So that's just the, the reason for that. Anyway, the next section takes place in August 1999 and is titled The Summer Night. They're, uh, 
this is a short section and not much to discuss in terms of theological significance here. In this section, many Martians throughout Mars have the same kind of telepathic experience that Mrs. K had. Martians start singing and playing American songs without knowing the lyrics or where they've come from or what they mean. And at one point, it's explained that the children are singing a song, just uh, singing a song. They just thought of it all of a sudden. It's just words that we don't understand. So they have some kind of telepathic connection with the, the humans that are coming uh, to, to Mars. In the next section, there is something that is theologically significant to me. And this section takes place in August 1999, just like the previous one, and is titled The Earthmen. And here we have the second expedition of, of humans that land on Mars. And when they are they land, they are surprised by their reception. Actually, rather, they're surprised by their lack of reception. None of the Martians seem impressed with the humans. They don't care much about the humans. They just keep blowing them off. In fact, one Martian after another keeps sending them to different houses. So the Earthmen come and, and see someone. Oh, you're from Earth. How great. Go see Mr. T. And then they go see Mr. T. And he says, you're from Earth. Oh, how great. Mr. A will want to hear all about this. So they keep sending them to different places, but none of them care. And when the captain of the expedition finally tells Mr. A, we traveled 60 million miles from Earth, Mr. A yawed, that's only 50 million miles this time of year. <laughs> and the humans are taken aback. They cannot believe the response that they have received. Until they finally get to Mr. I. And the captain tells Mr. I, we're from Earth. We have a rocket. There are four of us, crew and captain. We're exhausted. We're hungry. We'd like a place to sleep. We'd like someone to give us the key to the city or something like that. And we'd like somebody to shake our hands and say, hooray, and say, congratulations, old man. You just got to love the humility of the captain and crew here. Going to Mars isn't enough. They want the recognition and accolades that go along with it. But who knows? Perhaps we would all want that if we were in that situation, although I'm not sure Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong wanted to walk on the moon to get the keys to a city or for the congratulations and parks, but I could be wrong. Anyway, when the crew tells Mr. I all of this to Mr. I, the Martian looks for forms to have them sign. He gets out some paperwork and tells them to sign it without reading the fine print. But here's a good reminder. Always read the fine print. Without reading that, though, the captain signs the paper and asks Mr. I if the rest of the crew needs to sign. But Mr. I laughs, like gut-busting kind of laugh. Thinks it's the most hilarious thing he's ever heard, and he says that he's going to have to tell Mr. X about that one because it was so funny. And we're left wondering, why is it so funny? What is that? What? How can that be? But we'll soon find out. First, Mr. I examines the paper the captain has signed and says, everything seems to be in order. Even the agreement for euthanasia if final decision on such a step is necessary. And that, my friends, is why you always read the fine print. Mr. I, this paperwork that he's given to him, they sign it, agreeing to euthanasia, if that's necessary. And well, How are they going to determine if that's necessary? Well, we'll find out. Then Mr. I gives the captain a key, but not a key to the city, but rather a key to a house. And the crew goes to the house, and they are finally greeted with cheers and congratulations. Then one Martian after another explains how they are also from Earth. And each has a different explanation for what Earth looks like. Some of them say Earth was completely covered with water, water, or Earth is completely covered with jungles and nothing more. So they all have these different explanations, and they all believe that they too are from Earth. Then it dawns on the captain. They've been put in an insane asylum. And he's right. 
Then we find out some more information about Mars and the Martians. The expedition, uh, expedition crew sees the Martians doing unbelievable things like juggling fire or shape-shifting and changing their appearance, and they can't believe it. They can, what, what is it explained is that the Martians can do this through the use of, of, of telepathy and what is referred to in the book as auto-suggestion. I would call it something like projection. They can project things that aren't there so that others can see and experience them. Which uh, also brings into that idea of how can we know what is true and how can we know what is real and how can we know all these different things and how can we see or know or experience something if uh, these are just projections in front of us. So it does have this idea here, does have this idea here of simulacra and what is real and how can we know that. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting side note that it keeps coming back to that and we've already discussed it. But that's why Mr. I actually was laughing at the suggestion of the crew signing the papers, because Mr. I believes the crew to just be a telepathic projection of the captain, who he believes to really be a Martian. So Mr. I thinks that the captain is a Martian who's projecting himself as a human and also projecting the crew as well. Now, Mr. X is a psychologist in charge of the insane asylum who wears a mask just like the other, his other Martian compatriots. But his mask, Mr. X's mask, has three smiles on it, which sounds horrifyingly creepy to me. Anyway, I, I think that's just a terrifying image of, of the, these mad, three masks, three smiles within this one mask. I, I think it sounds creepy. But he has this conversation with the captain. Here's what they have. So the captain said, you think we're insane and we're not. Contrarily, I do not think all of you are insane. The psychologist pointed a little wand at the captain. No, just you, sir. The others are secondary hallucinations. However, he's not really a Martian, but he's a human. The captain is really there, but the Martians refuse to believe this, even in the face of great evidence. And that is of theological significance to me. People refusing to believe the truth, even in the light of great evidence. Now, in an attempt to prove that they are telling the truth and really are beings from Earth that rode a real rocket to Mars, they take Mr. X to the rocket and they let him examine it. And he steps inside and he's in the rocket for a long time and he emerges and scratches his nose and says, this is the most incredible example of sensual hallucination and hypnotic suggestions I've ever encountered. I went through your rocket, as you call it, he tapped on the hall. I hear it. Auditory fantasy. He, he, he drew a breath. I smell it. Olfactory hallucination. Induced by sensual telepathy. He kissed the ship. I taste it. Labial fantasy. Here Mr. X is looking in the face of irrefutable evidence and still doesn't believe. We see this in John twelve thirty seven, which reads, Jesus had done many great miraculous signs before the people, but they didn't believe in him. People had seen Jesus do so many things that defy logic, that defy the laws of nature, that are supernatural, that can be explained no other way than he is divine, than he is God, yet they did not believe. They were pre presented with irrefutable evidence, just like Mr. X, yet neither of them believed. This is how we can still be today when it comes to people believing in God. I know people who have seen and experienced miraculous things, from miraculous healings, to people who have walked away from horrific accidents, uninjured, and I have seen things and know people who have seen things that cannot be explained by any other reason than supernatural explanations, that God is at work, that things 
cannot be explained any other way than through God. And together, using reason, experience, and logic, there's overwhelming evidence for the existence of God and overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he says that he is. Yet in light of this evidence, many people still do not believe. In the Martian Chronicles, Mr. X calls the captain a psychotic genius and tells him that his insanity is beautifully complete. And then we have this exchange. My insanity, the captain was pale. Yes, yes, what a lovely insanity. Metal, rubber, gravitizers, food, clothing, fuel, weapons, ladders, nuts, bolts, spoons. Ten thousand separate items I checked on your vessel. Never have I seen such a complexity. There were even shadows under the bunks and everything. Such concentration of will. And everything, no matter how or when tested, had a smell, a solidarity, a taste, a sound. Let me embrace you. He stood up at last. I'll write this into my greatest monograph. I'll speak of it at the Martian Academy next month. Look at you. Why, you even changed your eye color from yellow to blue, your skin to pink from brown, and those clothes and your hands having five fingers instead of six. Biological metamorphosis through physiological imbalance and your three friends. He took out a little gun. Incurable, of course, you poor, wonderful man. You'll be happier dead. Have you any last words? This shows the point even further. Mr. X is presented with irrefutable evidence, yet still does not believe. That's how many people are in the world today. There's evidence pointing to the existence of God and such things as irreducible complexity, which states that from a cellular level, life is too complex to evolve slowly. So, for example, if you look at a flagellum in a cell, you'll see that it's an essentially an outboard motor. There are rings and walls and stators and other things in there that, that, that make it move much like an outboard motor. And irreducible complexity states that if you take any of those parts away, even from the simplest of life forms, you'll no longer have something that's capable of life as we know it. You'll no longer have a living cell. There's parts in the motor. If you take a part out of, your, um, out of the motor of your boat, do you think that the motor is going to work? Or does it need all the parts to work? So this idea of irreducible complexity says, we need all the parts to work. We need everything there at once, not something that comes together slowly over a period of time because that doesn't work. You don't have one part and then have another part come along and then have another part come along and then all of a sudden somehow all these parts somehow fit together and then start working. No, you need them all there to be able to work. And even the question is asked there, where do all these parts come from if they come together slowly? So I'm not even sure that, that really answers a question that they want. But that's just one thing. If you want to learn more about that, I encourage you to check out uh, Michael Behe, B-E-H-E is how you spell his last name, Michael Behe, especially his book, Darwin's Black Box, that will be particularly helpful in this and understanding irreducible complexity and looking at what that is. We can also look at something in what are called anthropic constants, which are highly precise and interdependent environmental conditions that support human life. There are at least 120 anthropic constants that are scientifically proven and are so very fine-tuned that if they were just off by the littlest of bits, fractions of percents, we would not be living on this big blue ball spinning in space. Some of these anthropic constants are the oxygen level in the atmosphere. If it were more, air could spontaneously combust, and if there were less, we would suffocate. Or even how transparent the atmosphere is. If it were less transparent, not enough solar radiation would reach the Earth's surface. If it were more transparent, we would receive far too much solar radiation. 
Even the atmospheric composition of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and ozone are considered anthropic constants. If gravity were off by just the littlest, 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 littlest bit, you and I would not be here right now <laughs> as we are. Even the thickness of the Earth's crust and the 23-degree tilt of the Earth, all anthropic constants that are needed for life as we know it. And these things are, are dependent upon each other, meaning that if just one of them is off a little bit, even just fractions of percents in some cases, then many of these things become off as well. And, and if one of them changes, then others of them change. And, and everything gets thrown off. We can no longer have life as we have it on this planet. Now, you may have enough faith to believe that all this happened by chance, without someone here to design it. I don't have that much faith. That takes a lot of faith, and it takes a lot of faith and nothing. I don't have that much faith. Now, those are just a few scientific examples that point to the existence of God, yet people still do not believe. And why? Why do people still not believe in the, the, the face of great evidence, whether it's scientific or whether it's experiential, that we know somebody that's gone through a miraculous healing or has had this event where their life has just been changed, they're a completely different kind of person, and they say that it's because of Jesus? Why do we look at all these different things within the, the light of evidence and say, and people say, still say, I don't believe. In part, and sometimes, it's because people have decided that no matter the evidence, no matter what is presented, they're not going to believe. And that's because people often don't let them, don't let the evidence take them where it leads. So, for example, if I wanted you to give me a math problem with the answer, I don't know, let's say 42 for you Douglas Adams fans who work we need to get to at some point on here sooner or later we can can add that to the list but you can give me an infinite number of math problems with the answer 42 21 plus 21 42 plus 0 40 plus 2 i'm sure there's other more complicated ones that i have no idea because i'm not a mathematician but whatever it may be we could come up with them all day but it isn't that that's not how logic and evidence and scientific method work you don't start with the answer and then fill in the blanks around it to make it fit what you want the answer to be that's not the way that we should operate as people, but it is often the way that that is operated within both the fields uh, of science and sometimes even uh, in other fields as well, where we start with the answer that we have in mind and we make sure that everything fits around that to get to the answer that we want. If you don't think this is really the case, then I just encourage you to look up Einstein's fudge factor, which is also known as the cosmological constant, and then we can talk a little bit more. But in 1915, I'll tell you about it, actually, uh, Einstein uh, derived the equations of general relativity that describe the, the workings of a gravity-dominated cosmos. And then he added a fudge factor called the cosmological constant to ensure that, in keeping with the contemporary understanding of the day, that the universe described according to his, according to his equations would be a universe that neither expanded or contracted. Let's get into this a little bit more. When, when Einstein tried to prove his theory of general relativity, he found that this, the theory showed that the universe, universe should either be expanding, going out, or collapsing in upon itself. Now, I, I think we can see, and hopefully, the universe is not collapsing in upon itself. So if it's not doing that, if it's not getting smaller, then it must be expanding. However, Einstein wanted to produce a model in which the universe was static and stable, meaning that the, the universe wasn't expanding, that it wasn't contracting, because 
That's what he thought the proper result should be. Other people thought that of the universe. Scientists thought that of the universe at the time. So Einstein comes along and has a theory that says, oh, no, the universe should be either expanding or contracting. And I probably think it's expanding, perhaps. So he looks at this and he says, but that's not what people want it to be. And that's not what I want it to be. So he introduced a fudge factor, put something into the formula that didn't belong, whose sole purpose was to cancel out the cumulative effects of gravitation. As a matter of fact, Einstein later called this the biggest blunder of his life because he started with an answer of where he wanted to get and he made sure that his formula fit that so that he could get the answer that he wanted all along. Friends, we need to look at the evidence and with reason and logic go where the evidence directs us. So if you've already determined your destination or your answer, that doesn't matter what evidence is presented to you because you've already got to where you want to be. So if you've determined that you don't believe in God and that you won't, and it doesn't matter what evidence or logic or suggestions or ideas or facts are presented to you that you still won't believe, if that's what you come into it with, you're probably not going to. So I just encourage you, be open. Don't start with the solution or the destination, but let the evidence take you wherever it may. That's good scientific practice. That's good scientific method. Coming up with some observations, making a hypothesis, and then seeing if we're right or seeing if we're wrong. But we don't start with the answer that we have and then come back and make some observations and make a hypothesis and then make a, a formula to fit to where we've already started with because, because that's where we wanted to go. That's not the way it should be, but that's the way that it sometimes has happened, as we've just seen here with Einstein. You can go ahead and look that up for yourself. I think it's fascinating what happened there, starting with the solution in mind instead of letting the evidence take you wherever it may. In the Martian Chronicles, Mr. X has already determined that the captain is insane and is telepathically projecting his crew and rocket. And no matter the evidence that's presented, Mr. X will not believe otherwise. Continuing on, Mr. X with the gun. The gun drawn, he says to the captain, You sad creature, I shall put you out of this misery which has driven you to imagine this rocket and these three men. It will be the most engrossing to watch your friends and your rocket vanish once I have killed you. I will write a neat paper on the dissolvement of neurotic images from what I perceive here today. The captain responded, I'm from Earth, my name is Jonathan Williams, and these... Mr. X shoots his gun and Captain Williams falls dead. The other men in his crew scream. Mr. X stared at the men. You continue to exist? This is superb! Hallucinations with time and spatial persistence. He pointed the gun at them. Well, I'll scare you into dissolving. No! The three men cried. An auditory appeal, even with the patient dead, observed Mr. X, as he shot down the three men. Mr. X will not let the evidence persuade his beliefs no matter what. And what he believes to be true is false, and he holds that belief enough to kill four men. But he doesn't stop there. Once he shoots the, the men, he, he, the, they lay dead on the sand, and they don't disappear. So he kicks them, and he can feel it, and he knocks on the rocket. And he can still feel it, and he can, can hear that sound. And then we read Mr. X say, it persists! They persist! And he fires his gun again and again at the bodies, then he stood back. The smiling mask dropped from his face. So you may think that perhaps this is the turning point for Mr. X, that he has finally come to believe that what he is seeing and experiencing is real, but that isn't the case. The evidence doesn't change his belief. In fact, Mr. X comes to believe that the hallucinations have somehow been passed on to him. 
So even though the one who was projecting the hallucinations is dead, they've now become his hallucinations, which Mr. X now means that that believes that now that makes him insane. So in the ultimate example of not letting your preconceived notions be affected by irrefutable evidence, Mr. X is convinced the only way to make these hallucinations disappear is to turn the gun on himself. And he does. Mr. X kills himself, believing that it will fix everything, but it doesn't. Suicide is not the answer. And if you're considering that, please contact someone. Call 1-800-273-8255. If you're considering self-harm or or suicide, that's the number for the Suicide Prevention Hotline, because there are people who want to talk to you. There are people who will hear you and know, get to know you and will tell you and, and that you are loved and, and, and that life is worth living even when things are difficult or even when you're going through great struggles. The suicide is not the answer here for Mr. X and, and it's not the answer for you. So I encourage you call 1-800-273-8255 if you're struggling with this or, or reach out to a trusted friend or companion to seek the help that you need. So please, please, if you're having these thoughts of suicide or self-harm, seek help. Get help. It's available because you are loved and you are wanted. So please seek help. In the Martian Chronicles, Mr. X's suicide fixes nothing. The four humans lay where they were killed. Mr. X's body lay where it fell. And the rocket doesn't vanish. The Martians end up selling the rocket to a junk man and it is used as scrap metal. A terrible tragedy caused in large part because Mr. X would not let the evidence change his preconceived beliefs no matter how convincing and irrefutable that evidence is. Friends, don't be like Mr. X. Don't start with a solution in mind, but look at the evidence for God and use reason and logic to lead you to your destination. Be open and willing to let the evidence take you where it does, even if it's not your intended answer or destination. That section with Mr. X is so theologically significant and Speaking of how people regard evidence and preconceived notions, I I know we spent a lot of time there, but to me it was worth it. And it's something that's really fascinating, that section to look at. And I think that we see that in people. Again, we see see how humans are, even though we're talking about Martians. I think that's interesting. The next section, though, is just over a page long. And if this was a different podcast, I could probably spend a whole episode talking about it. This section is titled The Taxpayer and takes place in March of 2000. In this section, a man named Pritchard stands on the launching pad of the rocket and yells through the fence surrounding the pad that he's a taxpayer and a good citizen, so he should be allowed to go on that rocket. He wants to go because he believes there to be impending doom upon the Earth in in the, the, the form of a nuclear war coming in the near future. He's eventually taken away by the police for causing such a scene, and he uh, he still is belligerent and screaming as he's dragged away. And that's the end of the section. Once Pritchard is taken away, it's a regular morning. But this does raise questions of entitlements by the government and what should or should not be provided to taxpayers and our citizens in good standing with the country. Maybe that would be a great section to raise and ask and answer many of those questions if this was a podcast about that. But it's not, so that's not our focus, and we're going to move on. The next section is titled The Third Expedition and takes place in April of 2000. The third expedition lands on Mars, and where they land, it's a 1920s town from the memories of those on the expedition. It's explained in this chapter that anti-aging technology has been developed and and is used, and that's why people are able to remember things from the 1920s when they were young men. So they're they're over 80 now. They're they're in their 80s, 
but they can still remember things from when they were young men because of this anti-aging technology. So the third expedition lands. Uh, the the third expedition lands, and not only do they, do they discover that they're in a idyllic 1920s town, but they soon discover that some of the inhabit inhabitants of this town are their deceased loved ones. And this, of course, leads to the question of the afterlife. And here's a dialogue between some of the expedition crew and their loved ones. How long have you been here, Grandma? said Lustig, who's a member of the expedition crew. Ever since we died, she said tartly. Ever since you what? Captain John Black set down his glass. Oh, yes, Lustig nodded. They've been dead thirty years. And you sit there calmly? shouted the captain. Tush, the old woman winked glitteringly. Who are you to question what happens? Here we are. What's life anyways? Who does what for why and where? All we know is here we are, alive again and no questions asked. A second chance. She toddled over and held out her thin wrist. Feel, the captain felt. Solid, ain't it? She asked, and he nodded. Well then, she said triumphantly, why go around questioning? Well, said the captain, it's simply that we never thought we'd find a thing like this on Mars. And the grandmother's response is great. Listen to this. She says this, and now you've found it. I dare say there's lots on every planet that'll show you God's infinite ways. That's so good. That's so good that there's lots on every planet that will show you God's infinite ways because creation reveals who God is. That the, from the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities have been made visible. We can look at creation and we can look at this, what has been created to see in part who God is and we can see God's infinite ways all around us in all of creation, no matter where we look. But Hinkston, another member of the uh, expedition crew, uh, he, he says this to the, the grandmother's response. Is this heaven? Nonsense, no. It's a world and we get a second chance. Nobody told us why, but then, but then nobody told us why we were on earth either. She's essentially asking the question that we all ask. What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What is this life for? Why are we on life and what is the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of all this? The grandmother claims that no one told us why we're here on earth. But she's wrong. First of all, we're here on earth because God created us. God created humanity and put us here. We are here because of God. Because God created us in his image so that we could fill the world with reflections of who God is as we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. We're here because God had life before the creation of the world and knew that life was good and wanted to share conscious, intelligent life with other beings. So he created us. It is said that God saves us from his grace, and that is true, that, that God has grace and that we are saved by God's grace, that, that he came and that he sent his son, and because of his love and because of his grace, he has saved us. But that is also true of creation, that because of his grace, God has created us. Because of his love, God has created us. And that is so beautiful that God wanted to give us the best, so he gave us life. And life is good. Even though it can be hard, even though it can be difficult, we go through struggles, we go through difficulties. God decided that it was better for us to have life, even with all of its struggles and difficulties and trials, that it was better to have life than not. And what about all those difficulties and struggles and unpleasantness of life? Well, we're actually going to get to that in a moment, as Bradbury mentions in the next section. So we will get there. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about those 
the, those t- bad times in life. But for now, remember that there is a reason that we are here. That God wanted to share the goodness of life with us and loved us and desired to create a place where we could share his love and goodness of life with, where, where he could share his love and goodness of life with something else. So he created us. That is why we are here. And, and in turn, God hoped he desired that we would reflect his image to this world as we love him and love neighbor and and can get along and, and can tell people of his love and grace and live in relationship with him. And that's why we are here. But that answer isn't given in the Martian Chronicles. They just accept this strange version of Mars, of some sort of pseudo-afterlife, and each member of the crew goes to a separate house that night that they remembered from their childhood. And Captain John Black meets his mother and father and his brother, all whom are deceased, and he goes to their house, and he eats with them, and he celebrates at night. And and, and as it's coming to to bedtime, he goes to lay down in a room, and his brother Ed is in the room with him. Then the captain's mind starts to wander, as our minds often do when they when our heads hit the pillow. What follows is what I believe to be the most terrifying passage of this book, an, ex- an exchange between these two brothers that gave me chills when I read it, and actually gave me chills when I saw this episode of the Ray Bradbury Theater. You can go watch this. This is an episode, one of the, the episodes from, from that. You can see that on Amazon Prime. A terrifying, chilling moment. Captain Black becomes suspicious. He starts to wonder if all this is some kind of deception. Is any of this real? He's basically wondering if this is all a simulacrum, an image or representation of the past members of the crew remembering it, and somehow, is this real or is this not real? Again, we come back to that idea. He starts to wonder, what if they have taken this from my mind somehow and reproduced it? And what if these really aren't my deceased loved ones? And he becomes paranoid. And here's where we have this terrifying, chilling exchange. Carefully, Captain Black lifted the covers. He rolled them back. He slipped from bed and was walking softly across the room when his brother's voice said, Where are you going? What? His brother's voice was quiet, cold. I said, Where do you think you're going? For a drink. But you're not thirsty. That is a chill-inducing reply to me. It, it creeps me out that his brother knows that you're not thirsty. You're not going for a drink. That, that, that he knows that. But you're not thirsty. That line just is chilling, I think. Yes, I am, the captain replies. No, you're not. Captain Black broke and ran across the room. He screamed. He screamed twice. He never reached the door. The next day, there are 16 coffins carried out from the houses, all the men on the expedition killed and buried by their pseudo-family members, as yet another expedition to Mars has ended with the death of the entire crew. A, a, a chilling passage there, and we can see, I think, again, that it was those Martians that are there that are were, were telepathically linked to them again, and, and why they killed them all, and, and what happened, we don't exactly know, but but they are invaders to their planet. And that does raise a moral question of how do we deal with invaders to our planet, but maybe we'll never have to deal with that because are Martians or aliens real or are they not? But tune in next episode and I'll let you know. Just a reminder of that. So anyway, we're just going to move to the next section, which has a number of theologically significant passages and is titled, And the Moon Be Still as Bright. And it takes place in June of 2001. Very early in this section, there's another expedition that lands on Mars but it's a very different Mars from than earlier section. The Martians, all of them, as far as they can tell, are dead. The archaeologist on this expedition, a man whose name is Spender, 
uh, he's told that the Martians, he explains that the Martians have all died due to chickenpox. The chickenpox is said to have burnt them black and dried them out to brittle flakes. We aren't sure which, but one of the earlier expeditions brought chickenpox and infected and killed the Martians. Now they wonder, do any of them remain? And it appears that all the Martians have died. One of the men seems to take comfort in knowing that the earlier expeditions didn't knowingly do this to the Martians. But I think that does raise an interesting question of who bears the blame here. Even if the humans didn't mean to bring this to the Martians, are they still responsible? I think to some degree they are. There is still some kind of culpability that's there, even if it wasn't intentional. If the humans had never gone there, if the, the Martians would still be alive. So there is, whether it's intentional or unintentional, there is some bearing of responsibility that one of these expeditions have. And it's quite the responsibility that they bear because it's, they're responsible for the death of an entire species, even if they didn't mean it. It was an unintended consequence of their actions because actions always have consequences. It's also interesting to note here that some say the Martians getting chicken pox is an analogy to the smallpox disease that killed many Native Americans in North America. I can see that correlation and would not be surprised if this is more than a coincidence and just kind of what Bradbury had in mind writing this, but I'm not certain of that. But, but some have speculated that and I think that does make sense. After seeing more of Mars and what has happened as a result of the humans landing on the red planet, Spender, Spender has a conversation with the captain of this expedition, Captain Wilder. And here's part of the conversation. We'll give the mountains new names, but the old names are there, somewhere in time, and the mountains were shaped and seen under those names. No matter how we touch Mars, we'll never touch it. And then we'll get mad at it, and you know what we'll do? We'll rip it up. We'll rip the skin off and change it to fit ourselves. We won't ruin Mars, the captain says. It's too big and too good. And listen to this response by Spender that brings us to our next theologically significant discussion. Here's what he says. You think not? We Earthmen have a talent for ruining big, beautiful things. We Earthmen have a talent for ruining big, beautiful things. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is one a one-line description of what is known as the fall in Genesis chapter 3. For those of you who are not familiar with the fall, this is when Adam and Eve were living in perfection in the garden, disobey God by eating the fruit of the tree that's been forbidden to eat from, and sin enters the world and people are corrupted and, as well as creation. And in this disobedience, we have fallen from our standing with God, and now there's a chasm that separates people from God that's known as sin, and a chasm that separates people from people that's known as sin, and a chasm that separates who we are from who God wants us to be that is known as sin. Sin enters the world and we, we people have ruined this big, beautiful thing. And that is the reason for many of our hardships, difficulties, and trials of life is sin. Because of sin, doing things that God would not want us to do, we have difficulties in life. The sins we have, that we ourselves commit and also the sins that others commit that affects us. We have sins that that bring trouble and difficulty to our lives, and people have sins that also bring trouble and difficulty to our lives. Or, or there's a natural disaster, or tornadoes, or, or hurricanes, or, or tsunamis, all these different kinds of things. I think that we can look at and say this is a result of the fall, living in a creation that is not intended to be lived in. This is not the way that God intended creation to be, but it's a fallen creation, and we've been affected. Creation itself has been affected. There's been multiple things that have been affected. Everything's been affected. Everything on earth has been affected by the fall. We're all changed because of it, and we live 
in a fallen world. I think this is every episode now. I'm certain that in every episode now we have discussed sin in the fall. It's a, a reoccurring theme for us. So I know we've already said a lot about it. And I'm not sure we have to go much into this, but I think that that really, really shows uh, what Genesis 3 is saying, that we Earthmen have a talent for ruining big, beautiful things. And we truly do. We ruin this big, beautiful thing that God had. But here's the great news, people. We have ruined it, but God can redeem it. God can redeem us. And ultimately, God is working to redeem creation, to redeem us. And while we have ruined things, God can bring restoration to what we have ruined. That we've ruined this big, beautiful thing, but God is even bigger and God is even more beautiful. And he can bring restoration to what we have ruined. And that, my friends, is good news. But when bad things happen, they're not the fault of God. They're our fault. That we were made with free will and we misuse and we abuse that free will. And it brings up hard times that result from that abuse of free will and through living in sin and also living in a fallen a fallen world, a fallen creation where there's things like like cancer that exists or illness or, or sickness or accidents. All those things exist because we live in a fallen world. It's not the fault of God, but it's the fault of our own actions. But we also need to remember that the devil is real, and he's hard at work, and he comes to kill and steal and destroy. So that's another factor why bad things happen. That, that the fall, the free will that we have, that the devil is alive and active, and sometimes all those things, you know, one of those things, multiple of those things combine to make life very hard, very difficult, and life can be filled with tragedy. And Bradbury is right, my friends, that we earth men and women, we earth people have a talent for ruining big, beautiful things. Look no further than the fall. But remember, the fall does not have the final word. That we have ruined something that is big and beautiful, but God is even bigger and even more beautiful and brings restoration to what has been ruined. That is the God we serve, and that is good news today. Continuing in this section, Spender leaves the expedition. He goes off by himself and comes to the conclusion that it would be better if humans never stepped foot on Mars again. And it would be better for them to have never stepped on foot on Mars in the first place. And he's probably right. He decides that the best way to get people to never come to Mars again is to have yet another failed expedition. So he goes and he kills six of the expedition crew members and then runs off and hides in the wilderness of Mars. But the others follow him. He's killed some of the men. He's revolted. He has had a mutiny, so they, they follow him. And after a brief shootout between Spender and the rest of the expedition, Captain Wilder holds up a white flag and approaches where Spender is taking cover behind some rocks. Spender allows Wilder to approach and they have a conversation. The captain, here's what we read, the captain considered his cigarette. Why did you do it? Spender quietly laid his pistol at his feet because I've seen that what these Martians had was as good as anything we'll ever hope to have. They stopped where we should have stopped a hundred years ago. And then continuing later on in the conversation, uh, Spender continues, they knew how to blend art into their living. It's always been a thing apart for Americans. Art was something you kept in the crazy son's room upstairs. Art was something you took in Sunday doses mixed with religion, perhaps. Well, these Martians have art and religion and everything. You think they knew what it was all about, don't you, Captain Wilder said? For my money. And for that reason you started shooting people? 
And here's Spender's reply. When I was a kid, my folks took me to visit Mexico City. I'll always remember the way my father acted loud and big. And my mother didn't like the people because they were dark and didn't wash enough. And my sister wouldn't talk to most of them. I was the only one that really liked it. And I can see my mother and father coming to Mars and acting the same way here. Anything that's strange is no good to the average American. And that response, my friends, is an example of this idea of something that's called the fear of the other. No matter who the other is or, or what that entails, this theory or belief basically says that we are afraid of people who are different than we are. Whether that's in regards to race or gender or appearance in terms of clothes or um, whether that's things that you wear or religion or social class or status or position. It doesn't matter what the difference is. The theory says that we have a fear of those who are different than we are. And I think there's some truth to this theory in our world. For example, racism stems, stems in large part from fear of the other. People hate people that look different from them simply because they have a different skin color and they view them as being other. And, and they look at that and there's some kind of fear that's there. And then there's a hatred that develops once there's fear that's there. And that really doesn't make sense to me. And it's unquestionably wrong when we look at racism and it's, and it's rejected by me, but it truly does, I think, stem in part from this idea of a fear of the other. That because people look different than me, I need to fear them and fear produces hate <laughs> and hatred. Uh, right for you Star Wars fans, I could go into that, but but we'll stay away from that. If you know that Yoda quote, if you know that Yoda quote, put it on social media. Make a comment on this episode. Let me know you've listened. And if you know that quote that I'm talking about with with Yoda and fear and hatred and jealousy, go ahead and make that quote, and I'll know that you listen. I think that'll be fun to have that conversation. So I think that's where it stems from, though. This idea of fear of somebody else and hatred and and all these things arise from it. But we as Christians should not have a fear of the other. We should not have a fear of the other. In 1 John 4, 18 through 12, we read this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. We love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates a brother or sister, he's a liar, because the person who doesn't love a brother or sister who can be seen can't love God who can't be seen. This commandment we have from him, those who claim to love God ought to love their brother and sister also. Perfect love drives out fear. We should not have a fear of the other, rather we should have a love of the other. If anyone says, I love God and hates a brother or sister, he's a liar. So we who claim to love God ought to, to, to love brother and sister also. We need to reject this idea of the fear of the other. And instead of building walls, of course, I'm talking here about metaphorical walls, or perhaps sometimes even literal walls. People build walls, whether they are metaphorical or, or literal, that bring separation between us and people who are different than us, whether that's race or religion or class or status or gender or some other different way. Whatever it is, there are some people that have built walls to separate people. But what we need to be doing is we need to be tearing down walls. We need to be taking down those walls of separation between us and people who are different from us. And, and in the place of those walls, we need to build bridges. Bridges of love. Bridges of peace. Bridges of compassion and acceptance and forgiveness and patience. Bridges of grace bridges of humility, and bridges of servanthood. 
We need to build bridges to other, no matter who these others are. You know, they need to be built out of the love and compassion and grace as we look to the salvation we have in Jesus Christ so that we can share that salvation with others. So that people, we can go to people and love and tell them the good news and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We should not have a fear of the other. We should have a love of the other. And that is a message that we as Christians should be championing here in 2022. To love all, even those who are different than we are. To build bridges to those who are different, not walls. We who love God are supposed to love people, all of them, even the quote-unquote other, whoever that other may be. We should not have a fear of the other, but we need to have a love for the other as we seek to build bridges to them, not walls that separate us. Moving on in this section, we see a lesson that we can learn from the Martians. Listen to what Spender tells Captain Wilder. He continues to talk to him, and here's what he says. They knew how to live with nature and get along with nature. They didn't try too hard to be all man and no animal. That's the mistake we made when Darwin showed up. We embraced him and Huxley and Freud, all smiles. And then we discovered that Darwin and our religions didn't mix, or at least we didn't think they did, and we were fools. We tried to budge Darwin and Huxley and Freud, but they wouldn't move very well, so like idiots, we tried knocking down religion. We succeeded pretty well. We lost our faith and went around wondering what life was for. If art was no more than a frustrating outflinging of desire, if religion was no more than self-delusion, what good was life? Faith had always given us answers to all things, but it all went down the drain with Freud and Darwin. We were and still are a lost people. And the Martians are a found people? inquired the captain. Yes. They knew how to combine science and religion, so the two worked side by side, neither denying the other, each enriching the other. The captain says, that sounds ideal. Is that ideal? What should the relationship be between Christianity and science? What what should that relationship be, combining religion and science? There are actually four major views of what the relationship between science and religion should be. And they are, it should either be a relation, one, one of the possibilities, it could be a relationship of conflict, or it could be a relationship of interdependence. A third one is a relationship of dialogue. And a, first, a fourth one is a relationship of integration. So we're going to take a few moments here to look at these four, and I'm going to start with the position that I hold. I actually hold the position of integration, that science and religion should have a relationship of integration. Now, this view says that the integration of science and religion is necessary to have a comprehensive understanding of reality. The more we understand about science, the more we can understand God. And the more we can understand God, the more we can understand about science. This uh, proposition is dependent upon one thing, and that is truth. That all truth leads to God, and that God is truth. Therefore, all scientific truth leads to a better understanding of God. Scientific truth could lead to uh, uh, helping better understand who God is, or how he interacts with the universe, or how he has established laws in the created order. Also, knowing the truth of the scriptures allows us to know what is true and what is not true, and that applies to everything, including the field of science. So science certainly has something to offer religion, and I believe that religion, Christianity specifically, has something to offer science, and that the two should be integrated together, that they can have a dialogue and a conversation and can learn some things from one another, and the two can come together 
and, and have that integration. But there are three other views, so we're going to look at those as well. Some say that religion should be in religion and science should be in dialogue with each other. This view is basically a step down from the integration view. So it's like science and religion get along, but they don't really influence one another. They can talk to each other, but they don't affect what the other believes or understands. So one field can talk to the other, but it doesn't really matter. And I don't see this to be the proper relationship because religion has things to learn from science, but science also has some things to learn from religion. It seems strange to me that these fields would have a dialogue with each other, but then it's a pointless dialogue because it has no impact or no influence on any kind of understanding or anything. That we're going to talk to each other, but we're going to never let one impact or influence the other. But I just don't understand that, and I don't think that that's a great way to go about this um, uh, in doing that, that they can just talk to each other, they can have that relationship, but they never, never grow or learn something from one or the other. Now, some, such as Stephen Jay Gould and Carl Barth, argue that the relationship between religion and science should be a relationship of interdependence. However, we cannot have a complete as possible understanding of science and knowledge in general if we exclude God from the process. Also, claiming that religion and science should be in separate arenas means that so much of the human experience and knowledge gained through religion is discounted or discarded instead of being evaluated in a proper way, and then also allowing us to come to a more complete understanding of science and a more complete understanding of who God is. It is a, uh, it's an absurdity to plainly dismiss so much evidence and experience while attempting to understand truth. Separating science and religion does damage, I think, to both fields. So having religion stand in one corner and science stand in the other corner and they never talk to each other and they don't have a relationship and you stay over there and you stay over here and you guys can't talk to each other and we're just going to pretend that these two things are separate, that never influence one another, that shouldn't have a conversation with one another, that shouldn't try to learn something from one another. That just seems foolish and childish to me. That kind of relationship enhances neither field. And we can do better than that. The fourth view is that science and religion are in a relationship of conflict. Now, not surprisingly, one of the world's best-known atheists, Richard Dawkins, holds this view, going as far to claim that science has won the conflict with religion, that science has won out, that they have won the battle because science is in a battle with religion, and they are in a boxing ring punching each other, and Dawkins believes that science has landed the knockout punch on religion. I would disagree. Stephen Hawking also supported this view, claiming that science, particularly the laws of physics, makes God unnecessary. But in an excellent response to Hawking's claims, Professor John Lennox, who's the author of the book God's Undertaker, has science buried God. He's also the author of several other books, but, but God's Undertaker is especially a good one, in my opinion, one that I have and would encourage you to read if you want to have more understanding of this relationship between science and God. But Linux explains that while, Hawk, while Hawking says that, that the laws of physics makes God unnecessary, Linux says, well, the laws of physics can't create themselves. That's not one of the laws of physics that they get to create. You know, one of the laws of physics is not we created our own laws. So how can the laws create themselves and where do those laws come from? And it seems problematic to me that Hawkins is saying, well, the laws of physics can just all explain this, but the laws of physics can't explain why the laws of physics are there. You still need somebody to put those in place. You still need a creator. So, so it doesn't seem to answer much for me. But those are two of the people who particularly noteworthy who believe that science and religion were in conflict with one another. 
And this view is problematic on many fronts. I think it's used by both scientists who are afraid of religion and also by people who are religious who are afraid of science. But there's no reason for one to fear the other. And much can be learned from both fields. The relationship of integration is indeed ideal for us, just as it was from the Martians, because we have something to offer to science, and science has something to offer to us. So we return to the book and read again the last lines of that conversation. Hear about the Martians. Yes, they knew how to combine science and religion so the two worked side by side, neither denying the other, each enriching the other. And the captain says, that sounds ideal. And I agree. I think it does. But even within an integration relationship, one must have a higher place than the other. So when it comes down to it, science may be, some scientists and some of their theories or whatever you would like to call that, some of their, their findings may be in conflict with Christianity. Maybe it's, say, say something that the scriptures would disagree with. So in, in full disclosure for me, when that happens, the scriptures win. The scriptures win. So, so even in that relationship of integration, there's still maybe a hierarchy that goes there. And for me, the scriptures are foundational. So when we have people who make discoveries who say, this proves the Bible isn't real, I, I automatically question why as scientists they're, they're saying that. Are they seeking to prove that the Bible isn't real? Is that the position they've started with? And have they fit their evidence to get to where they already wanted to go? But I think that there are questions as well that science just cannot answer. Science never will be able to answer them because they don't have the capacity. They don't have the ability to answer that. And to see this, it's this is seen in a great quote by NASA scientist Robert Jastrow. He's no longer alive, but he was a NASA scientist who himself was agnostic in his beliefs about God. He he didn't believe in God, but he didn't not believe either. He wasn't sure what to believe. He, he was agnostic. So here's what NASA scientist Robert Jastrow once said. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. What a beautiful quote. What a beautiful quote, because there are some things that science cannot answer. Maybe science can answer some of the how, where, when, etc. questions. Maybe it can answer some or many of those, but it cannot answer the who question. Who created this? It cannot answer the why question. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Those kinds of questions science does not provide an answer to. When science has answered all the questions that it can answer, those other ones will still remain. And theologians have been focusing on answering those questions for centuries. So science and religion should not be in conflict with one another, but there should be an integration as the two fields learn from the other and grow together. So church, Christians, I am talking to you here. We should not be in a battle against science, but I know some of you are, but we shouldn't be. The more and more we learn about the world and life within our world, the more and more evidence points to an intelligent designer, not away from one. But this is also true from the other side. Scientists, you should not be in a battle against religion. I think that's a mistake on your part too, so let's try to get together and learn something from one another. But now the question of course remains, what science and what scientists can be trusted? 
My friends, that is the million dollar question. We clearly know that in the world of 2022, what can be trusted? What is good science? What is not good science? All these kinds of questions that I wish I had some answers for you, but I just don't. But science, when properly done, should be in a relationship of integration with Christianity. Now, how science is done properly and who is doing it properly, that is the hard part that we need to figure out these days. But I truly believe that science, when done properly, points to God, period. We already discussed some of these ways earlier with irreducible complexity and anthropic constants, so we're not going to go too much further into that. But I do want to give you a couple of resources for those of you who are skeptical, or maybe you just want to look at the evidence for yourself and determine if it leads to God or leads away from God, or maybe you just want some more things to look at, some more resources to be able to study this. The first is a book, and it also has some accompanying videos that you can find on YouTube. It's a book by Lee Strobel, which is called The Case for a Creator. I've talked about him before, or the book he has, The Case for Christ. I would encourage you to check out his book and the videos on YouTube that he has, Case for a Creator. Read the book, watch the videos, they're really good, and we can see that science points to God. Another is a book that is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's a book by Norman L. Geisler and Frank Turek. It's a great resource. It's helped with this discussion. I've used it before in teaching. I've used some of the, what I've learned there, even in here. So I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turk. Great book. I encourage you to check that out if you want some more information about these subjects. So the Martians and the Martian Chronicles have combined science and religion to work side by side. And I think that's what we should do. Not not necessarily just to to help us prove that God exists, but it will do that. But also we need to do this because the facts of science are pointing to God. That truth points to God. That the the truth, God is the God of truth. That whatever is true will point to God. So I think that we can have an integration there as we have something to learn from science. And science, I hope you're open and having something to learn from us. I don't think those two should be a conflict with another. That's probably the prevailing view in our culture. And I think We've made a mistake, and perhaps, perhaps we have something to learn here from the Martians in this book. Splendor says one more thing later in the conversation with Wilder about this. He says, They blended religion and art and science because at base, science is no more than an investigation of a miracle we can never explain. And art is an interpretation of that miracle. They never let science crush the aesthetic and the beautiful. It's all simply a matter of degree. An Earthman thinks, in that picture, color does not really exist. A scientist can, improve, uh, can prove that color is the only way the cells are placed in a certain material to reflect light. Therefore, color is not really an actual part of things I happen to see. A Martian far cleverer would say, this is a fine picture. It came from the hand and mind of a man inspired. Its idea and its color are from life, and this thing is good. I'd like to live here, Wilder said. You may if you want. You ask me that? That's what Wilder responds. You ask me that? How brazen a spender who is surrounded by men's with, men with guns, ready to kill him, yet he tells the captain that he may live there as though he has the authority to do so. Will any of these men under you ever really understand all this? Spender asks. They're professional cynics, and it's too late for them. Why do you want to go back with them so you can just keep up with the Joneses to buy a, 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 a Yairo like Smith has to listen to music with your pocketbook instead of your glands? Wilder leaves Spender and goes back to the other men and has an internal conflict. And here's part of what he's thinking. I hate this feeling of thinking I'm doing right 
when I'm not really certain I am. Who are we anyway? The majority. Is that the answer? The majority is always holy, is it not? Always, always, just never wrong for one little insignificant tiny moment, is it? Never ever wrong in 10 million years. What is this majority and who are in it? And what do they think and how do they get that way? And will they ever change? And how the devil did I get caught in this rotten majority? I don't feel comfortable as claustrophobia, fear of crowds, or common sense. Can one man be right while all the world thinks they are right? Let's not think about it. Let's crawl around and act exciting and pull the trigger. First of all, the majority is not holy. It's usually the opposite, especially if we are looking at the culture of America today. We are familiar with the saying as Christians that we are in this world, but we're not supposed to be of this world. A quote that is sometimes incorrectly attributed to Jesus. If you can find where Jesus says that, please let me know that we are to be in this world, but not of this world. I think that it goes in line with the teachings, and I understand what it's saying, but I don't believe it's a quote that Jesus actually ever says. If you can find it, let me know. But but we can see in the, the culture today that we, that the majority, is not always holy, is not always right. That And we as Christians, we are called not to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We talked about this earlier, but it it's seen here in the thoughts of Wilder. He knows what he's doing is wrong. Killing Spender and the preservation of the Martian culture and the understanding of who they are are probably going to die with him. And he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to kill Spender. But he conforms to the masses instead of taking a stand. Wilder doesn't like Spender's method, but he's sympathetic to his desire to save and preserve the Martian culture. And Spender does deserve punishment for the mass murder of other members of his crew. He killed six of them, but, but Wilder isn't sure that, that, that they should kill him. But his last thought is, let's crawl around and act exciting and pull the trigger. He has conformed. He's given into peer pressure. Actually, he hasn't even given into peer pressure because these aren't his peers. Wilder's the captain. These are his subordinates. So he gives in to the pressure of those who are not his peers, but those who are following his orders. But they're really not following his orders. He's following theirs because he gives in to their, their pressure. But don't conform. Be countercultural when the culture is wrong. Wilder ends up shooting Spender and killing him. And the next day, one of the men is using the Martian city for target practice. He's shooting up their buildings. He's destroying their artifacts. And Wilder knocks his teeth out. And then the section ends. There are a few small sections that follow that we aren't going to discuss much. Most of these are about the terraforming of Mars to make it look like Earth. There's trees and other plants or planet on Mars to increase the oxygen levels to make the red planet look more like our green planet. And then there's a small section that takes place in February of 2002 titled The Locusts. And the idea here is that humans, over 90,000 of them in six months, have come and built cities and infrastructure and have swarmed across the red planet of Mars like locusts. Unfortunately, the comparison of humans to locusts is an accurate one. We often go into places and take all the natural resources without concern for local people or animals or wildlife or plant life or uh, the overall environment. And we just go and in there and take what we need and then we get out. And we can be as bad as insects when it comes to this. And shame on us when we are. We should be better stewards of this planet that God has given us to rule over. 
We should be good stewards with what God has given to us, and I hope that we will. The next section is one titled Night Meeting and takes place in August of 2002. Here in this section, there seems to be some kind of rip in the space-time continuum as a human on Mars whose name is Thomas meets a Martian whose name is, is, is Mucha. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's spelled M-U-H-E-C-A. I'm going to say Mucha. That's the way I'm going to pronounce it. Not sure of that, but we'll go with it. So the two meet, but Thomas sees the planet as it is in his time. A planet where the Martians are no longer alive, where their cities have been abandoned, where, where humans have come in and, and have started to terraform and to build their own cities and all those different things. But Mucha sees the planet as it was when the Martians were alive, that the cities were populated and things were thriving and, and were excellent. And they both appear as ghosts or phantom to one another and they cannot touch anything from the other's timeline. So it's a really interesting story here that we see that kind of there's this overlap of somebody from the past going into the future but can't change things, while at the same time, this person from the future goes into the past but can't change things, and they're both simultaneously in the past and in the future, and it makes your head hurt to think about it, and it's science fiction, so it doesn't have to make sense, so don't think about it too much. But what's particularly interesting here is throughout their conversation, they try to figure out what's going on. Thomas believes he's in the future, and the Martian is in the past, and it's certainly dead in Thomas's time, but the Martian is not so convinced. He's not so convinced that that's what's going on, and here's part of their conversation. But the ruins prove it. They prove that I am the future. I am alive, and you are dead, says Thomas. Everything in me denies this. My heart beats. My stomach hungers. My mouth thirsts. No, no, not dead. Not alive, either of us. More alive than anything else. Caught in between is more like it. Two strangers passing in the night. That is it. Two strangers passing. Ruins, you say. Yes. You're afraid. Who wants to see the future? Whoever does. A man can face the past. But to think the pillars crumbled, you say. And the sea empty. And the canals dry. And the maidens dead. And the flowers withered. The Martian was silent. But then he looked on ahead. But there they are. I see them. Isn't that enough for me? They wait for me now, no matter what you say. Something that, that Mucha said to me that stands out is, who wants to see the future? Whoever does. Why would Mucha want to see the future? The future is related to hope. And he doesn't seem to have much hope here because he looks in it and, and the Martians are dead, the cities are abandoned, the seas are dry, the canals are gone, the flowers has, has withered. He looks and he does not have much hope for that future. And while we cannot see our individual futures, we are certain of the church of Jesus Christ, the, the big C, universal church, the, the, the church being those true dedicated followers of Jesus. We know what is going to happen to the church. Here we're diving into the theological topic of eschatology, dealing with the study of the end times, because we know how the story ends. We know our future. Our future ends with us being resurrected and having a new body and a glorified body like Jesus' body and being able to spend eternity with Jesus in a place where there's no more sin and no more pain and no more struggle and no more death. That is the future that we have, and that is the future that we can be certain of, that we can have hope in, that we can have assurance in. We can know that we know that the word of Jesus is real and true and an eternal reward is waiting for those who have placed our trust and salvation 
and lives in the hands of the Son of God. That is Jesus Christ. We have assurance that it will happen in the life to come. So I'm okay with the future and looking into that. Does that mean everything's always going to be easy and great and sunshine and and prosperity here on earth? No, no, it doesn't mean that. But it means that our future, our ultimate future is very hopeful. Something that we can look at and, and know who God is and know that we will be with him and we will be his people. But I understand how those who have no hope or no assurance would not want to look at the future. The question here is, how do you feel about your future? Both your future on this world and this life, but also your future, the life that's coming after you die. Do you have hope? Do you have assurance? I pray that you do. I'm not like Mucha wanting to avoid not seeing the future. I'm okay with seeing the future because the future is full of hope because of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and because God is in control and there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I have hope. The section ends with the two going their separate ways, neither really knowing who was in the future or who was in the past or what was going on, and we don't really know either. That's the section about looking at the future I thought was interesting and worth discussing. Then we have a few other sections that we're not going to discuss. They're more about the colonization of Mars and destroying the old Martian cities to make way for new human cities, and they're brief and, and really don't have much significant for our dis- discussion other than really not having respect for the things of the past and destroying things like that and, and people coming in and taking over places. Well, maybe there is some, but we're going to move on. It is interesting to note here, though, that some copies of the Martian Chronicles contain a section titled The Wilderness, and others do not. The copy that I have doesn't have it, so I haven't read it, and we're not going to discuss it. Also, you may have a copy of Martian Chronicles, maybe I should have said this earlier, but you may have a copy with different dates than the ones that I've mentioned. So in 1997, there was a, a print run was made of the Martian Chronicles that pushed all the dates back 31 years. So uh, 31 years further than they were originally listed. So the section dates for 2003 example now became 2034. Why they did that, I'm not sure. I can assume that it's because in 1997, and the first section starts in 1999, they're like, we don't want to have this start two years in the future. Let's have it start 31 years in the future. I don't know why they picked that, but but that's what it is. So they have that. So there is some time discrepancy. If you've got a later uh, copy print of the novel, there may be some time discrepancies in the sections that I've been saying, and that's why. But the next section we'll discuss is titled Way in the Middle of the Air, and it takes place in June 2003. And this is undoubtedly the most controversial of all the sections in this book as it deals with racial prejudice. In fact, this section was removed from copies of the Martian Chronicles when it was printed in 2001 and 2006. Why exactly the section was eliminated, I'm not sure. I don't believe that it should have been. I suspect that this section was eliminated because of the use of the N-word which was actually surprising and pretty jarring for me when I read this section because I wasn't expecting it, but there it is. Boom. And maybe it was jarring for you too, but this section is not an acceptance for the N-word or for racism, but rather it actually speaks against racism. And racism here in this section is not accepted, but it's rejected as we will see. So I think that this section is worth reading and worth discussing, even though it is offensive in several ways. 
But racism is offensive in several ways. So I think that it's supposed to be offensive in several ways. And I think that's the point that Bradbury's making here uh, throughout this. So, so I'm not sure of why that was. This section was not included in those print runs. I suspect this is why, although it is very interesting that the author of Fahrenheit 451 has some of his books edited and some things removed from them, even if it wasn't his choice, almost as though some of these chapters were burned and forgotten about, but we won't go there. We'll just get on with the section, and we're going to see a couple of things here that bear significance for our discussion. First, a little bit about this section. It's a pretty heavy section to read, and like I said, quite jarring, especially with the use of the N-word. So Samuel Teese uh, and his grandfather and a group of unnamed and unnumbered men, we don't know how many there are, they sit outside his hardware store in an American town in the south. We're not told what town it is. We're not told what state it is, just a southern American town. The conversation focuses on how word has spread throughout all of town that the African-American people in town are getting on a rocket at one o'clock in the afternoon and they're leaving for Mars. And Samuel, uh, he's clearly racist and clearly upset that he he thinks that they should call the governor and get the militia to come out and to stop them, that that they should be able to stop the African-American people from leaving town. Samuel and his grandfather and the others are, are white. And moments later, though, the main street of the town is crowded with people of color as they make the trek towards the rocket. And Samuel's grandfather says, look like you're going to hoe your own turnips, Sam. A reference to oppression of the African-American people of this town, or perhaps even a reference just to slavery. So it's interesting because the 2003 in this book looked much different than the real 2003, and I'm thankful for that. Now, we still have a long way to go in this country with racial racial relations, however, so we we shouldn't, but we do. I mean, we should be much further along than we are, is what I'm trying to say, but, but we're not. And I think that's because we, the people haven't done such a great job in this, in, in this way, that we have built up more walls than we have bridges. And we talked about this earlier. And I think here, full disclosure, I am white. That, that's what I am. And I think that some people who look like me have done a really really poor job of building bridges and instead of put up some walls instead of made some division as they come back again to that idea of the fear of the other and i think that what really needs to happen is more people like me and more people who look like me we need to tear down those walls and build more bridges those bridges of love and peace and acceptance and grace that we've already talked about we've already mentioned that so you know what i'm talking about but i believe that that's what we can do as we seek to to, to continue to advance and to improve racial relations here within America and within our society, that the church should be instrumental in that because Jesus offers salvation to all, to everyone, no matter who they are. And we are to love everyone. Remember, we don't have a fear of the other. We don't have a division of people who are different than us. Rather, we have a love for the other. We want to build bridges to those where others might want separation. But as the crowd passes Samuel, he sees a man that he knows, a man named Belter. And he runs down and calls the man off his horse. And Tease at one point calls Belter Mr. Way Up in the Middle of the Air, which is uh, taken from the lyrics of the African-American spiritual Ezekiel Saw the Wheel, about a vision of the prophet Ezekiel that occurred in the sky. So that's the naming reason for the naming of this section. And Belter owes Samuel $50. 
And Samuel tells Belter that he can't go on the rocket to Mars unless his debt has paid. But Belter's kind of forgotten about this and has got caught up in this and he doesn't have the money. But he promises Samuel that he will send him the money from Mars. But Samuel Tease rejects the offer and tells him that he has to work off the debt. And this means that Belter will miss the rocket. Now, during this conversation, a small group of African-Americans have gathered together around this conversation, and an old man steps forward and asks Samuel how much he's owed. And here is the section that we read. None of your business, Samuel replies. But the old man asks Belter and then tells him he owes him $50. So here, continuing on, this is what we read. The old man put out his black hands at the people around him. There's 25 of you. Each give two dollars. Quick now. This is no time for argument. Here now, cried Teeth, stiffening up. Tall, tall. The money appeared. The old man fingered it into his hat and gave the hat to Belter. Son, he said, you ain't missing the rocket. Belter smiled into the hat. No, sir, I guess I ain't. And Teeth shouted, you give that money back to them. But Belter bowed respectfully, handing the money over. And when Tees would not touch it, he set it down in the dust at Tees's feet. There's your money, sir, he said. Thank you kindly. Smiling, he gained the saddle of his horse and whipped his horse along, thanking the old man who rode with him now until they were out of sight and hearing. Samuel curses at them, and then we read this. Pick up the money, Samuel, said someone from the porch. It was happening all along the way. Little white boys, barefoot, dashed up with the news. Then that has helps them that hasn't, and that way they all get free. Seeing a rich man give a poor man 200 bucks to pay off something. Seeing someone else give someone else 10 bucks, 5 bucks, 16, lots of them all over everybody. The white men sat with sour water in their mouths. Their eyes were almost puffed shut as if they had been struck in their faces by wind and sand and heat. And I think that is beautiful. Those who have gives to those who have not, so that no one gets left behind. Those who have give to those who have not, so they can all be free. And when I read that, I immediately thought of Acts 2, 44-45, which says this about the early church. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. And that's here what we see this group of people did. They came together and shared with those who were in need, and that is so beautiful. This is one of my favorite parts of the book, actually, because the light of these people shines so bright in what they are doing and how they are treating people. And and there's this evil of racism that is all over this entire chapter, but some of the actions of the people within this shine a bright, so light compared to that darkness of racism that we have in the backdrop of this chapter. The the light shines brightest in the dark. And this is true of life life circumstances. So racism, this great evil that we have in the world, this, this darkness, that when we see that good things come, even in the face of that, that light shines so bright in comparison to the darkness of racism. And I think that it's beautiful that, that we see these actions here by these people, that those who have give to those who have not, so no one gets left behind. And you can clearly see, clearly see the people in this chapter who are the ones that are doing what is right. And you can clearly see those who are doing what is wrong. But we as Christians, we followers, of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who freely gives his love and offers salvation to people of all nations, races, 
and places, we need to reject racism. It needs to be rejected. It's wrong and evil and should not be part of our mindset or attitude, and you can find no argument anywhere in the scriptures to support it. Can't be done. Just can't be done. So don't even try. And if people are doing that, they have a misunderstanding and abuse of God's word, and they are wrong. But there's another part in this section of this book that's absolutely beautiful and instantly brought to me to mind for me some of the words of Jesus. Most of the people have left town. The streets are empty now, yet Samuel and the others still sit on the porch. Then they see a bicycle coming down the road, and there's an African-American boy who's riding it. And one of the men on the porch says, Tease, here comes your silly now. Now, silly is the name of a 17-year-old African-American employee of Tease, but even the idea of how it's said, here comes your silly now. Uh, referring to that as a person, calling him yours, is just that very idea is offensive. But it's supposed to be offensive. That's part of the point that Bradbury's making here, that one person should not own another person. And that what is happening here on these people on this porch and this idea that they have, they are offensive. That's supposed to be part of the story here, that you're supposed to get that, that these people are not doing what they should do, that, that they are not the, the heroes of this story. So it should be offensive. But Samuel stops silly as he's riding by and tells him, to get in the store and to start, start start sorting nails and fixing broken hammers. Then we read this exchange. Mr. Teese, you don't mind I take the day off, he said apologetically. And tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that, Teese said, I'm afraid so, sir. You should be afraid, boy. Come here. He marched the boy across the porch and drew a paper out of a desk. Remember this, sir? It's your working paper. You signed it. Here's your X right here, ain't it? Answer me. I didn't sign that, Mr. Teese. The boy trembled. Anyone can make an X. Listen to this, silly. Contract. I will work for Mr. Samuel Teese two years, starting July 15, 2001. And if intending to leave, we'll give four weeks' notice and continue working until my position is filled. There. Teese slapped the paper, his eyes glittering. You cause trouble? We'll take it to the court. I can't do that. Well, the boy, tears started to roll down his face. If I, go, if I don't go today, I don't go. I know just how you feel, silly. Yes, sir, I sympathize with you, boy, but we'll treat you good and give you good food, boy. Now you just get inside and start working and forget all about that nonsense, eh, silly? Sure. Tease grinned and patted the boy's shoulder. The boy turned and looked at the old men sitting on the porch. He could hardly see now for his tears. Maybe... Maybe one of these gentlemen here. The men looked up in the hot, uneasy shadows, looking first at the boy, and then at Tease. You mean to say you think a white man should take your place? asked Tease coldly. Grandpa Quartermain took off his took his red hands off his knees. He looked out at the horizon thoughtfully and said, Tease, what about me? What? I'll take Silly's job. The porch was silent. Tease balanced himself in the air. Grandpa, he said warningly, let the boy go. I'll clean the brass. Would you? Would you really? Silly ran over to Grandpa laughing, tears on his cheeks. Unbelievable. Sure. Grandpa, said Tease, you keep your trap out of this. Give the kid a break, Tease. Tease walked over and seized the boy's arm. He's mine. I'm locking him in the back room until tonight. Don't, Mr. Teese. The boy began to sob now. 
His crying filled the air of the porch. His eyes were tight far down the street, and old Tin Ford was choking along, approaching a last load of colored people in it. Here comes my family, Mr. Teese. Oh, please, please. Oh, God, please. Mr. Teese said one of the other. Teese said one of the other men sitting on the porch, getting up. Let him go. Another man also rose. That goes for me, too. And me, said another. What's the use? The men all talk now. Cut it out, Teese. Let him go. Teese felt for his gun in his pocket. He saw the men's faces. And then he took his hand away and left the gun in his pocket and said, So that's how it is. That's how it is, someone said. Teese let the boy go. All right. Get out. When I read that, when I read through that section and what Grandpa does for Silly, I wrote in the margin of my book, The Golden Rule. In Matthew seven twelve, we read Jesus' words as he says, Therefore, you should treat other people in the same way that you would want people to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. And that's become known as the golden rule. To treat people the way that you would want people to treat you. And I think that's what Grandpa does here on the porch and, and what the other people on the porch, what they do here to Silly. Grandpa volunteers to take his place so that he can go, so that he can be free with his family. And I love the response from the others on the porch, too. The other ones who are standing up for him and saying that, that, that you need to let him go. That you need to do the right thing. So we talked earlier about Wilder, how he gives in to peer pressure from, the, uh, for, from others to not do the right thing. But these men on the porch, they stand up for what is right, even though Samuel is pressuring them to do otherwise. The actions of the grandpa in this passage shine, shine so bright to me in comparison to who Samuel Tease is. The grandpa shines so bright. And he gives a living example of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7:12 to do to others what you would want them to do to you. Well, as Silly gets in the car with his family, he asks Samuel, What are you going to do nights from now on? What are you going to do nights, Mr. Tease? And Silly is making reference to Samuel and a gang of his friends terrorizing and lynching African Americans in the town. So Samuel gets mad, and he and his friend get in the car and go after them. Samuel has his gun and is ready to kill them all, but they soon discover that the people have littered the road with their belongings. It appears that they have taken nothing with them, that they are truly starting over in a new place with a new life. Samuel wrecks his car, avoiding what's left behind, and doesn't catch up with any of the people. He eventually makes it back to the hardware store, but refuses to watch the rockets as they lift off into space. Robert Crosley, professor emeritus of English at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, Boston, who has written many books, articles, essays, and appeared on at least one science fiction documentary, said this about the section we just discussed. Way in the middle of the air might be considered the single most incisive episode of black and white relations in science fiction by a white author. Incisive meaning analytical and clear thinking. So he's saying that this might be the most analytical episode of black and white relations in science fiction. Dr. Crosley may be right. And we today in 2022 America, we still have a lot to learn. And I think maybe we can even learn something here from the grandpa and the others who are sitting on the porch in this section. It's actually one of the main highlights of the book for me. And I think it's a real shame that this passage is taken out of some copies because it should be there because of the actions that we see and because of, of what Bradbury does and, 
and, and I really enjoy this section and looking at it. I don't enjoy the racism that we see within there, but I enjoy the response of the other ones. And I enjoy the way that that goes through and who we see Grandpa to be and how he is doing to others what he would want them to do for him, living out the golden rule. So I really appreciated this section, even though it is the most difficult and the most controversial of all the sections in this book. The next section is titled The Naming of Names, and it takes place in 2004 and 2005. No months are given. And this is about the naming of the various geographical features on Mars and how the names are given based on the people from the earlier expedition to Mars. Two things in this small section stand out to me. The first is this paragraph in which reads, And after the towns were built and named, the graveyards were built and named too. Green Hill, Moss Town, Boot Hill, Bidouille, and the first dead went to their graves. I wrote this in the margin of my book here. Can't escape death. Even on Mars, death finds you. We all die. Death is an inevitable part of life, but the question is, after you die, where are you going? Heaven or hell? Where are you going to spend eternity? I know that's a heavy question to ask, but it may be the most important question that you will ever be asked. And it may be the most important question that you will one day have to answer. So be prepared. Know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. So what's your answer? What hope do you have? Do you know the answer to that question for yourself? Are you sure of your answer to that question? Where will you spend eternity? What will happen after you die? So be prepared. Jesus is the only way. In this section, there's also a statement on human behavior that leads into the next section that's also worth commenting on. So the final lines of this section reads this. The uh, sophisticates came from Earth. They came on parties and vacations, on little shopping trips for trinkets and photographs in the atmosphere. They came to study and apply sociological laws. They came with stars and badges and rulers and regulations, bringing some of the red tape that had crawled across Earth like an alien weave and letting it grow on Mars, wherever it could take root. They began to plan people's lives and liberties. They began to instruct and push about the very people who had come to Mars to get away from being instructed and ruled and pushed about. And it was inevitable that some of these people pushed back. And as I went through this preparing for this podcast, at this point it dawned on me that much of this book is an example of how people are people. What I mean by this is even on Mars, even on a planet that is foreign and different, where people could start over to make anything they wanted to, that they could restart, they could, they could do anything in any way. They, what they do is they return to the ways that they knew and what they were familiar with and what they were comfortable with. People are people, even on Mars. Going to a new place doesn't save them. Having a new beginning isn't what they need. Having to start over in a new place with new people and to get new things and just having a a restart, that's not what they need. What they need is Jesus. They need to be made new. They need to have a change in nature, not a change in geographical location. They need to be changed by Jesus. And this statement about how, uh, how... People began to plan others' lives and and, and liberties and how it was inevitable that some of these people would push back. That leads to the next section, which is titled Usher 2, and it takes place in April of 2005. This section is a longer one and is very reminiscent of Fahrenheit 451, if you're familiar with that. It takes place, like I said, in April 2005, titled Usher 2, 
To properly understand this section, it's very useful to have first read Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Fall of the House of Usher, as Poe's story has much to do with this section. But before we get into that, let me tell you how this section is reminiscent of Fahrenheit 451. This section is about a man named William Stendhal, who went to Mars when the government on Earth took and destroyed his vast book collection. Took and destroyed his vast book collection. That should sound familiar to you Fahrenheit 451 fans. Well, it's explained that in the Great Fire of 1975, it's mentioned as uh, that destroyed a great number of books. And here's what we read about this. They passed a law. Oh, it started very small. In 1950 and 60, it was a grain of sand. They began by controlling books of cartoons and then detective books and, of course, films. One way or another, one group or another, political... Bias, religions, prejudice, union pressures, there was always a minority afraid of something, and a great majority afraid of the dark, afraid of the future, afraid of the past, afraid of the present, afraid of themselves and the shadows of themselves. That part is, last part is so good and so accurate. There's always a minority afraid of something and a great majority afraid of the dark. But we, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of the dark. We need to shine through that. Not to to fear it, but to let the love and grace and kindness that is within us, and that joy that we have, shine in that darkness. We're not under the control of fear. We've been set free from fear. We are no longer slaves to fear because we are children of God. We are no longer slaves to fear because... Jesus has conquered death and has a victory over that, and his victory can be our victories. We have assurance that we can live in right relationship with him on this world, but also in the life to come. We do not need to fear the future, and we are set free from the past. And we don't live in a present state of fear because perfect love drives out fear. We are set free because we are children of the living God of the universe. So what have we to fear? We've already discussed some of that in, in other episodes, and in this, but so, so we're just going to move on. In this section, Stendhal has built uh, essentially a haunted house on Mars, and it's near a lake, and it's complete with lifelike robots and animals and human creatures, and he calls it his mechanical sanctuary. And there are soundtracks that go off at certain points, and the land around the house always looks like October because of the barren, sterile, dead landscape around the house. And it looks like this because Stendhal has used 10,000 tons of DDT to kill everything around the house. That's a bit extreme. You want to kill everything around the house, 10,000 tons of DDT should do the job. So, so that's what he does to make it always look like October outside his house. And one day, a man named Garrett, who is an investigator of moral climates, who were on Earth, but have now come to Mars, he comes to Stendhal's house and tells him that he's going to have to tear down the house because, here's what he says, you know, the law, strict to the letter, no books, no houses, nothing to be produced, which in any way suggests ghosts, vampires, fairies, or any creatures of the imagination. Isn't that a shame? Because we are beings of imagination. We have imagination. Just look at our our world and our planet, and it's amazing. All all of creation is incredible, and God has such a great imagination to make what he has made. And I think this is part of what it is to be made in the image of God, that we too, as humans, are imaginative beings, that we have the ability to create and to be imaginative, and we have these traits within us, and part of that becomes from being made in the image of God. And creativeness is good. Being imaginative 
is good. Those are good things that we have as being part, uh, being made in the image of God. But how, however, like almost all good things, good things can become twisted or manipulated or depraved of their goodness and can be used for evil. So not all creativeness is good. There have been a lot of criminals who come up with a lot of creative ways to commit a lot of crimes and hurt people and to do things that aren't good. Creativeness is good, though. It can be misused. It can be abused. So don't misuse your creativeness. Use it properly. Use it to make, use your creativeness, creativeness to make something beautiful, to show love, to help people. I would like to think that this podcast is part of my creativity and it's being used to help explain and clarify some theological beliefs and ideas and themes that might be in, in a new way and in a way that's maybe a little different and hopefully a way that some people can relate to and see and understand some new things that I've been taught and how people have invested into my life. Hopefully I'm using some kind of creativity of mixing my love of science fiction with my love of theology into something that, that comes together in a creative way. And that's my hope that this has been creative for good and for grace, for love, for compassion. And I encourage you to use your creativity for the same things to spread hope, to spread love, to, to spread compassion, to spread the grace of Jesus, to tell others about his salvation. Use your creativity for those kinds of things, and when creativity is used for those kinds of things, it should not be censored. It shouldn't be censored. Back to the Martian Chronicles, and I don't want to spend too much time here in this section. There's really not much to discuss for our purposes, and this is a little longer than I planned on spending on this section, but I think it's been worthwhile. But Stendhal actually ends up killing Garrett. He doesn't like somebody coming to his house and telling him what he can have or not have. And then Stendhal invites people who are described as clever psychologists, tremendously important politicians, bacteriologists, and neurologists, who are all members of what is called the Society for the Prevention of Fantasy. He invites all of them to his house. And they go to see what it is because it's scheduled to be torn down the next day because he's not allowed to have this kind of a house. So it's already been scheduled for demolition. But throughout the evening, all of these people who are part of the Society for the Prevention of Fantasy, they're all killed in ways that relate to great works of fiction that they are all unaware of. But they could have been aware of that if they had, been prevented, if they had not been prevented from reading the books and the works that are there. So, so they go and they, they look at these things and they read. If they could have been able to read them and have these books, their deaths probably could have been prevented. But since they didn't have access to them, they've been banned and censored and burned. They didn't know about it, and throughout the night, they're all killed. Uh, one of the things that sticks out to me from the section is that we have gone from Martians being against people to seeing the Martians kill humans when they first arrived to now people being against other people. That there's Now that there are no more Martians on Mars to be against, we've turned back to being against ourselves. That there's always some kind of conflict. Wherever we go in this universe, People would take themselves with us, so we would still have the same problems there as we do here, unless we have that new nature, that new creation that comes from Christ that's within us, because some simple change of location, even a change of planets, will not fix what is wrong within us. That sin problem that we have, that only comes through Jesus Christ. So this next section is a brief little section, only two paragraphs long, but contained a line that made me laugh out loud, and I thought I'd share it with you. <laughs> This section is titled The Old Ones, and it takes place in August of 2005, and it's about senior citizens, the old folks, finally going to Mars. And about older people going to Mars, we read this. Here's what Bradbury wrote. The dried apricot people, the mummy people, came at last to Mars. 
Yep, the dried apricot people. That is quite the description. Bradbury certainly had a way with words when I read that. I wasn't expecting it, but it, it certainly was a way of showing me what these people looked like instead of telling me what they looked like. Uh, I, I could picture that dried apricot in my mind and know exactly where he's going. So again, that kind of caught me off guard and thought it was uh, Bradbury's words, not mine. Don't be mad at me. Uh, moving on to the next section, it's titled The Martian and takes place in September of 2005. And this section is, well, oh, I'm not really sure how to describe this section, but it is sad. There's a man named Lafarge and his wife and him have moved to Mars. They're old now, but they are still grief-stricken by the death of their son Tom several years earlier. One night there's a rainstorm and Lafarge is sure that he hears something and he goes outside to investigate and eventually him and his wife see a young boy standing in the rain that's there, standing in the rain, standing in their yard in the rain. And Lafarge's wife, Anna, tells the boy to go away, but Lafarge thinks it looks like Tom. And he tells the boy that he's going to leave the door unlocked and if you are Tom, then you're welcome to come in and when you feel comfortable, just come in, come inside. And the next morning, they wake to their son, Tom, sleeping on their couch. Their son is back from the dead, it would seem. Uh, they even calls Lafarge father and Anna mother. And Lafarge asks, asks him, how did you get here? But Tom avoids answering the question. Now, I actually don't think that this is trying to make a reference or allusion to Jesus with a raised son. I understand how some people could think that. Maybe that's where we're going. They had a son, and now he's back from the dead. but. But I don't think that's really where we're going, and I think you'll see why. I don't think that's the point that's being tried, that's being made here. I think what's being made more is a statement about the loss of a loved one. How you never really get over the loss of a loved one. The time doesn't completely heal all wounds, even for the Christian. We miss our loved ones who are gone. Even if we know that they're in heaven, even if we have that assurance that, that they are okay where they are, we, we still miss them dearly. We, we, we have a great hope for them, but they are missed. And, 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 and we still feel that pain of them being gone because that's not the way things should be because we live in a fallen world. So I think that's really what they're making a statement here is that you never really get over the loss of a loved one and that grief and sorrow that can be there. Even in the midst of hope, even in the midst of joy through knowing Jesus, there's still grief and sorrow that is there because we are complex beings as humans that can have more than one emotion at a time. So we can have joy, but also grief and, and sorrow, but also happiness. And that's who we can be as people. But we never really get over that loss. There's still, there's still hurt. There's still pain there from that. And I think that's okay. And I think that just tells us that, that this is not the way things should be. And it's not. And one day it won't be. When the new heaven and the new earth come together and there's no more pain, there's no more dying, there's no death there. And if you know Jesus, that's where you're going to be. Lafarge and Anna, they, they, they go into the city and they take Tom with them. Tom doesn't want to go. He seems to be afraid to go in the city. He, he says that he's afraid that, that he might get separated from them, so he doesn't want to go, but Lafarge promises to stay close to him. However, Tom does get lost in the city. But not long after Tom is lost, a couple in the town, the Spaldings, their daughter, Levina, has been, who, who's been missing, missing for nearly a month, she's found. Lafarge finds Levina and has a conversation with her, and he finds out that Levina, who is the, the, the girl who's now Levina, was Tom. 
And this is a shape-shifting alien. Some of the Martians on Mars are still alive. But it's not just any shape-shifting alien. It's an alien that must turn into a person who is significant to someone else. And it has no control of of its shape-shifting. At least that's my understanding of reading this, that whoever this alien is in closest proximity to, and whoever has the strongest desire to see or find someone, that's who this alien becomes. That's who this alien turns into, whether they want to or not. So, for example, the Martian says to LaForge when he asks him to come with him and turn back to Tom, the alien says this, the thoughts are too strong in this house. He's in the Spalding house. It's like being imprisoned. I can't change myself back. Lafarge pleads with them to come home, come back anyway, and to turn into Tom once they're there and they get away from this house. He knows that this really isn't Tom, that it really isn't his son, but he wants him back nonetheless. And here's what the Martian says. But I must consider these people now. How would they feel if in the morning I was gone again, this time for good? Anyway, the mother knows what I am. She guessed even as you did. I think they all guessed, but didn't question. You don't question providence. You can't have the reality. A dream is just as good if you can't have the reality. Perhaps I'm not their dead one back, but I'm something almost better to them. An ideal shaped by their minds. I have a choice of hurting them or your wife. You don't question providence is what this alien says. And one of the things there are not... I'm not sure I agree with that. First of all, I don't believe in an unguided providence or fate or destiny or whatever you want to call it. If there's something like that that's unguided, I don't believe in that. So if providence is God-guided, and I say that it is, then is it okay to question providence? Is it okay to, to question God, essentially, is is I think what is the point is that's kind of being asked here. But first of all, let me say this. Not everything that happens is God's will. Sometimes we think it is, maybe we've been taught that way, that whatever happens is God's will, and he must have had a reason, and this and that and the other thing. But if something, whatever it is that happens, maybe you think, oh, that must have been God's will. But but God's will, if we define God's will as everything that happens, that's a poor definition of God's will. Because if God didn't will something, then it wouldn't happen, we say. But this would be true, though, if God controlled our decision-making and we were programmed robots to do everything that he said. But that's not the case. We have free will. We are free-willed beings who sometimes, and perhaps even oftentimes, rebel against God's will. If it was God's will, if it was his desire that Adam and Eve not eat from the fruit, then how do they eat from that? If it's God's will or desire that I do not sin, and yet I do, well, how did I do that then? And is it really God's desire for me to sin since I did it? That would be a misunderstanding of who God is, especially within our definition of how God interacts with the world that we talked about in previous episodes, of of how we look and understand God's providence, that he is alive and active within the world, but yet also gives free will to humans that can also have an impact and influence on what happens within the world. So God's will doesn't always happen because he's also given us a will and us the ability to make choices and to make our decisions. And as we said earlier, decisions, actions have consequences. All of them do. And sometimes when we do things that God allows us to do things, his will doesn't happen because he's given us free will. So I for one will tell you that that not everything that happens is God's will. And sometimes we come along and we question things. Is this God's will? God, how could you allow this? God, why would you let this happen? God, where are you? And and people ask, is it okay to ask those questions to God? Is it okay to ask those things? Well, I'm going to tell you that 
it's okay to question God about things that are going on in your life. That's what a relationship is based on, communication, talking, and figuring out things with one another. It's okay to question God about the things you're going through in your life. It's okay. God can handle it. And here's the best part. When you ask God some questions, you just might get an answer. But how are you going to get an answer if you don't ever ask those questions? And if you don't think that it's okay to ask God questions or to call out, even to, to do maybe what's a call out to God, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you here? Why? All those kinds of things. Some people say that and some people say, oh, how could you, how could you say that about God? How could you call God out in that way? Well, I'm going to challenge you to go read the Psalms. Go read some Psalms, especially Psalms that David wrote when he's hiding from, from Saul and, and running for his life. Go read some of those Psalms. What it really is is David's journal cries out to God, Where are you? Why have you given me over to my enemies? How much longer must I call? All those different kinds of things. Go read some of the Psalms or even some of the prophets and some of the things that they say to God, calling and crying out to him, and God can take it. It's okay. He can, and, and maybe through that relationship and talking with him, maybe, just maybe, he will provide some answers or some comfort or some peace or some guidance. Relationship is based on communication, and you can communicate your doubts and your fears and your questions and your concerns. You can question, and you can express those things to God. You can do that. It's okay. Go read the Psalms and then get back with me if you're having some struggles with this, because that is what we see going on there. So do I sometimes question things and, and realize what's going on in the daily, on my daily lives and I'm wondering what's happening here? Sure, absolutely. But that's what a conversation and that's what a relationship is, is dialogue and conversation and having the ability to communicate. That's what it is. But not everything that happens is God's will. Please understand, because when people choose to do things that go against what God would want, God allows people to do that. Now, there are some things that God has said is going to happen, and I believe those are going to happen, that, that God has willed those things to happen. But especially when we look at eschatology, which we already have, a number of the things for the end times is already written, is already going to happen no matter what anyone does about that. But I don't believe that's the case for everything, that God allows us to make choices, to have decisions, that we have an impact on the world. Even though God is still alive and active in this world, we we have an influence and an impact on it as well. So not everything that happens is God's will. So um, now I told you this section is sad, and it has been a downer for me to this point, but it gets even worse. The Martian agrees to go with the forge, but the head of the Spalding household catches the forge, taking who he believes to be his daughter. So his daughter's come back, and now now the forge is trying to take his daughter, and Spalding has a gun, and they and, and they, they run, so they run, but and Spalding shoots at them. The Spalding misses. And as LaForge and the Martian run separately through the city, they, they say they're going to get here to a meeting point, and they're trying to get there. But the Martian keeps getting in close proximity to people and uncontrollably changing his shape. First, the Martian is a criminal spotted by a policeman. And we read this also along the way, the same thing. Men here, women there, night watchmen, rocket pilots, the swift figure meaning everything to them, all identities, all persons, all names. How many different names have been uttered in the last five minutes? How many different faces shaped over Tom's face? All wrong. Eventually, the Martian collapses at the meeting place with Lafarge, and the people who have seen the Martian turn into various 
who have seen this Martian turn into various other people gather around this, and we read, gather around him, and we read these heartbreaking words. Before their eyes, he changed. He was Tom and James, and a man named Switchman, and another named Butterfield. He was the town mayor, and the young girl Judith, and the husband William, and the wife Clarice. He was melting wax, shaped to their minds. They shouted, they pressed forward, pleading. He screamed, threw out his hands, his face dissolved to each demand. Tom, cried the forge, Alice, another, William. They snatched at his wrists, whirled him about until with one last shriek of horror, he fell. He lay on the stones, melted wax coolly. His face, all faces, one eye blue, the other's golden, hair that was brown, red, yellow, black, one eyebrow thick, one thin, one hand large, once they stood over him and put their fingers to their mouths as they bent down. He's dead, someone said. It began to rain. This section ends with Lafarge looking for a boy standing in his yard during another rainstorm. But no one is there. And this time he closes his door. And he locks it. It is such a sad section and one to me that is deprived of hope. But as Christians, we have hope. We've discussed that earlier, but we have a hope. We have an assurance that we can look forward to the future. So since we've discussed that, we'll move on. The next three sections, I'm not sure of a lot to discuss in them. The first is called the luggage store, and that takes place in November of 2005. And we see a priest at a luggage store uh, and talking to the owner about the impending nuclear war on Earth. And the priest predicts that once the nuclear war starts, people will return to Earth out of a sense of duty or obligation. Or that they'll just want to be with their family or, or see what's happened back on Earth. See, I would think the opposite would be true. Maybe that if there's a nuclear war on Earth, that might be a good reason to stay on Mars. But that's not what the priest thinks, and then that's the end of the section. The next section is titled The Off-Season and takes place in November 2005. In this section, we see Sam Parkhill, who was a member of the fourth expedition with Wilder and Spender. He sets up a hot dog stand on Mars, the first one uh, that's ever been set up. And because there's more workers, there's more residents that are supposed to be moving to Mars, so he sets up a hot dog stand to greet them. And we see a few more Martians in this section, and it's estimated there are only about 150 Martians left on Mars by this point, so there are still some alive. And in the end of this section, Park Hill watches as he sees Earth set ablaze as the first bombs drop in a nuclear war. And with that, he knows that his hot dog business is over before it even started. And the next section is titled The Watchers and takes place in November 2005 and as we see the priest's words come true. The luggage store he was in is sold out of luggage by morning as a message is sent to Mars reading Australian continent atomized in premature explosion of atomic stockpile. Los Angeles, London, bombed. War. Come home. Come home. Come home. This novel was published in 1950 and really for the first time here um, we see that uh, the effects of the Cold War, and a number of these sections were also published before 1950, but some, many of them, uh, in no, the novel form was published in 1950, and many of these sections came out then as well. But this is really where we see that we're in the early days of the Cold War, and the tension and the threat of nuclear war on Earth, and the reality of it finally comes here. So, so we can see the Cold War undertones in the sections that are clear. And almost all the people on Mars listen. They go home, all of them. Almost. And then the next section is titled The Silent Towns, and it takes place in December of 2005. 
In this section, we see there are still a couple of people on Mars, and one of them is named Walter Grip. Well, Walter Grip was a young person who goes into town once every two weeks. That's the only time he goes there. And Grip has missed the news of the nuclear war on Earth and the subsequent abandonment of Mars. So everybody's left, and Walter wasn't in town, and he didn't know about this, so he's left behind on Mars. And at first, he likes it. He goes and does whatever he wants. He eats all the food he wants. He goes to a Turkish bath. He gets new clothes. He plays loud music. He sleeps in a mansion. He drives all these fast cars through town. But after a while, he realizes how empty the town is. And he sobs because he is alone. He misses human companionship. He misses being with other people. He is lonely. And he is lonely because, in part, we are made in the image of God, and we are so, which means that we are made to be in relationship with God, but also to be in relationship with other beings like we are. God is in perfect relationship within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when God makes us, he makes us to also be in a relationship with other beings like we are with other people. So God has made us to be in a relationship with him, but also relationship and community, gathered together in friendship with others. We see this truth very clearly in the Bible. It's even in the creation account of Genesis where we're told that everything that God creates is either good or very good. But do you know the first thing in the Bible that's called not good? In Genesis 2.18, God says that it is not good that Adam should be alone. So he makes Eve as a companion for him. Loneliness. Being alone. God says that is not Good, and that's the first thing that's not good, is loneliness. And part of who we are as humans is made to be in a relationship and community with other people. None of us like to feel alone or to feel lonely, whether or not we want to admit it. So we believe that, the, as I said in the Trinity, that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in that idea the Trinity may be hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around, but it's true nonetheless, three gods in one, the, the three in one. Uh, that we have within our Christian understanding of who is God. God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. And the three members of the Trinity, they come together in perfect relationship and community in one another. They are a family. And that is why and how God knows that relationship is good. There's a, a perfect relationship of love and unity and harmony within the Trinity, and that is what God wanted his creation to experience. So it's not good to be alone because God has not made us to be alone. And Walter Grip finds this out very quickly. He is alone and he knows that it is not good. But one day Walter hears a phone ring in a house and even though he doesn't get to it to answer it in time, he has hope that he's not the only person left on Mars. He finally has some hope that he might not be alone. So he starts calling random numbers in the phone book and eventually he decides to call a large beauty salon hoping that a woman will be there. And he gets lucky when he calls, a woman answers, but the call is cut off early. So he drives hundreds of miles to her, only to find that no one's there when he gets there. So then he decides to drive hundreds of miles back to where he came from, hoping that the woman came to where he was, and they somehow crossed paths without knowing. And that's exactly what happens. Walter meets a woman named Genevieve. And in what I believe to be an attempt at humor and making fun of the stereotypical fear of commitment associated with men, Genevieve proposes to Walter the same night they meet, since it's likely they're the only two people left on Mars, and once she proposes, Walter gets in his car and drives for three days and nights, never looking back, and continues to live on Mars by himself, never answering the phone when it rings, 
over those long years when he hears it ring one or two times, he never answers it. Like I said, I think this is an attempt at humor, uh, that, that stereotypical lack of commitment that men have when she proposes marriage, she wants to get out, and then he's okay with being alone. Uh, I, I think that's what it is. But, but loneliness is no joke. It is a serious thing because we're meant for companionship. We're meant to have a community to be with. So find a community of people. Get involved in a local church if you don't have one. Spend time with your friends drinking coffee and listening to this podcast and pause it often to disagree with the nonsensical dribble, dribble that spews from my mouth. Or pause it and maybe agree with something every now and then. But, but get together with people. Spend time in community with other believers who believe what you believe so you can build each other up, so that you can hold each other accountable, so that you can come together and do this thing called life and unity and community. But for now, we approach the ending of this book. There are only three sections left. And we skip far into the future in this next section as it takes place in April of 2026 and is titled The Long Years. Now this takes place 21 years after the last section and there are only two humans left alive on Mars. Walter Grip is still there and he's still alive. There's also a man named Hathaway. And Hathaway was a physician and archaeologist on the fourth expedition to Mars with Captain Wilder. He's still there. In this section, Mars is called a tomb planet. The Hathaway and Grip are the only ones, only beings alive on Mars. They're the only two that are there. Kind of. See, Hathaway has made robotic replacements of his wife and children who had passed away. And one day, Hathaway sees a rocket approaching Mars, and he cries. He sees people coming, and he goes to a nearby city that's been named New New York and sets it on fire in hopes of catching the attention of the rocket. And it works. The next day, the rocket lands, and out steps Captain Wilder. Hey, one of our characters comes back. Wilder had taken a crew to explore Saturn and Neptune and been gone for 20 years. But now Hathaway and Wilder are reunited. And Wilder tells Hathaway that their scans have shown that there are no Martians left on Mars. They have finally all died. And Hathaway tells Wilder that Earth has been involved in a nuclear war, and Wilder says that they have to go back to see it, no matter what. And they offer to take Hathaway back with them. But eventually, Wilder and the crew meet Hathaway's family, and they discover that they are robots. A few days later, Hathaway collapses. He's had a bad heart for years, and he knows that he is dying. And he asks Wilder not to let his robotic family know, because he believes that they wouldn't understand. And Hathaway dies. Wilder and his crew decide to leave and go back to Earth, and one of the crew asks if they what what should they do with the robots? Should they turn them off? And Hathaway says that never entered his mind when they ask him about the robots before he died. So they leave the robots there as they go about their daily routine. No reason for why they do what they do. Night after night, year after year, they continue living, if you can call it living, as though they were human. I think this raises some interesting questions as to what makes a human a human and can a robot have consciousness and such, all those kinds of things. But that seems more like a topic to discuss with a Philip K. Dick story or two, so we'll save it until then. Actually, in a few episodes, we'll be examining Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the novel that the movie Blade Runner is based off of. So in a few episodes, we will be looking at a work by Philip K. Dick where we will discuss this in length of humans, robots, what makes a human a human, can robots do all those kinds of things. We will discuss that when we come to Philip K. Dick, who asked that question in such a beautiful way, so we'll look at it then. 
And the next section is titled there, Will Come Soft Rains? And it takes place in August of 2026. In this section, we finally return to Earth. Specifically, we go to Allendale, California. In this section, we see uh, what we would call today a smart house. This story focuses on a house that's left empty because of the nuclear war. Outside of the house, the nuclear shadows of the former residents remain, just like what really happened at Hiroshima. Oh, that's terrifying. And even though the house is empty, it goes on with its daily routine, calling out the time, making breakfast every morning, giving out reminders, laying out clothes, doing these things that it's done every day. The house just goes through the routine, that, and, and, and just like the robots of Hathaway's family, actually, just they just go through the routine. And, and, and these two, two sections made me think of the letter to the church in, in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Jesus says that they have forgotten their first love. They're doing good things, but they're doing things because it's the routine of things they've gotten into. They've forgotten why they do what they do because of their love for Jesus. They've forgotten about that. They've gotten into this rut or this routine. And, and we as Christians can do that sometimes. We just get into this routine of things and we keep doing it because it's what we've always done or because of how it's always been. Even church can become like that for some people. We do what we do because this is how we've always done it. This is a routine we know, and and the church at Ephesus does good deeds, and they persevere, yet they have forgotten why they're doing these things. They just go through the routine. They just go through the motions without focusing on Jesus. Well, folks, let us focus on Jesus primarily, and then let his love and attitude and actions flow out of us. So we don't get caught in the routine of things, just going through the motions. We remember Jesus and focus on him and the love that he has for us. And that love that we have can flow to others and can be shared with all people everywhere. Later in the evening, a tree branch falls on the house and it catches fire. And the smart house tries to extinguish the blaze, but it cannot. And the house is consumed and lost. And the only thing that remains is part of the house that announces the date. And every day, it would say a new date. So we see the ravages here of war in this section, especially with the nuclear shadows that leaves the silhouettes of objects and people painted against the wall or grounds when the bomb went off. Now, this is actually a real phenomenon, as I said, that happened in Hiroshima. And I think kind of the best way that I can describe this or have heard it described is it's essentially like if you were to put sunscreen on part of your arm, but not on part of another arm, which part's going to get the sunburn? The part that does not have the sunscreen on it. Uh, So when a nuclear bomb goes off, it gives off radiation that basically bleaches walls, streets, sidewalk, etc. But if a person or object is there, it acts like a sunscreen. So that spot on the wall or the ground doesn't get the radiation impact, so it leaves a silhouette. So, So it's only the parts that are not covered that get that radiation, and then it leaves behind these nuclear shadows. It's an incredibly somber phenomenon that reminds one of just how serious the effects and impacts of war are and just how terrible war is. But we move here to the last section of the book, which is titled The Million Year Picnic, and it takes place in October of 2026. A family, a mother and father, William and their three sons, one of them named Timothy, have a rocket they've hidden from the government throughout the war so that it would not be dismantled and used for the war in some other way or shape or form. And as William is looking up at the sky, we read this conversation between him and his son, Timothy. What are you looking at so hard, Dad? I was looking for earthian logic, common sense, good government, peace, and responsibility. 
All up there? No, I didn't find it. It's not there anymore. Maybe it'll never be there again. Maybe we fooled ourselves that it was ever there. It seems to me like William was or is placing his hope here in fellow humans. He's placing his hope in society, in people, that if we just get the right group of people together, we could have a good government, and then we could have peace and responsibility, and, and we can solve all of life's problems. But as we've already discussed, the problems of people will follow them even if they go to different planets. So do not place your hope in your fellow humans. Don't place your hope in a perfect society or government because that doesn't exist. They will fail. But Jesus doesn't fail. Place your hope and trust in him and he is with you always. He is a good and, and kind savior. He is the prince of peace and people will let us down, but Jesus will not. We're told in the scriptures and Proverbs that any hope in mortals dies with them. But we have hope in a resurrected Savior. That's real hope. So William makes a similar mistake right at the end of the book. Once he gets to Mars with his family and they destroy the rocket so they can never return to Earth, he burns government documents and bonds and reports and tax information. All this stuff he burns and he says about that, I'm burning a way of life. Just like the way of life being burned clean off Earth right now. Forgive me if I talk like a politician. I am, after all, a former state governor. And I was honest, and they hated me for it. Life on Earth never settled down to doing anything very good. Science ran too far ahead of us too quickly. And the people got lost in the mechanical wilderness, like children making over pretty things, gadgets, helicopters, rockets. Emphasizing the wrong items, emphasizing machines instead of how to run the machines. Wars got bigger and bigger and finally killed Earth. That's what the silent radio means. That's what we ran away from. William may believe he's burning away of life, but those are just papers he burned and nothing more. Is he really going to produce change that the world wants? Burning those papers, does that produce the change? No. Starting on a, over on a new planet changes very little. The only way to produce true and lasting change within the hearts and souls of people is through Jesus Christ being made a new creation that's focused on love and kindness and grace and goodness and compassion. Jesus produces true change. We've talked about that a lot throughout this episode. What can be the hope? What can be the change that we need? And that is Jesus. If you want to see change in our society, if you want to see true, lasting change in our world, the answer is Jesus, not people. The very last lines of the Martian Chronicles are great. William promises his family that they are going to see Martians. They are nervously excited. They get to finally see Martians. And William, he takes his three sons and his wife to a canal and tells them to look down into it to see the Martians. And this is what we read. The Martians were there in the canal, reflected in the water, Timothy and Michael and Robert and mom and dad. The Martians stared back at them for a long, long, silent time from the rippling water. Yes, they're looking at the reflections. They are now the Martians because they are the ones who are living on Mars. They are Martians. And that's it for Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. Lewis's trilemma or the liar, lunatic, or lord argument for who Jesus is. People still not believing in God, even when there's a lot of evidence to believe. The relationship between science and religion. Fear of the other and race relations and how we as humans have a talent for destroying big, beautiful things. But how God is a God of redemption and brings restoration to what we have destroyed. All that and more 
was covered throughout this novel. So thank you for sticking through the end and getting to this point with me. I truly appreciate it. Movies are fun to look at and to see the theological significance within them, but I think I like doing it with books more. It takes a little longer to review a book, as you can see, because books always have more information and insight in them than movies do. So when I first read The Martian Chronicles, I liked it. When I went back over preparing for this podcast, I really liked it. And now that I've done this, I like it even more. I think it's a great work and one that is worth returning to and reading time and time again. It's so good to look at human behavior, and there are a number of points of theological significance that were fun to examine. So I hope as a result of this podcast, you went to a local used bookstore and bought The Martian Chronicles and read it. And if you haven't, even if you've listened to this, it's not too late. Go out and get it and read it anyway. It's an easy, fun read that does not disappoint. All right, well, I think that about wraps it up here, but my ending challenge is to read, watch, and listen to works of fiction, especially of the beautiful genre of science fiction. When you read or watch or listen to these things, to look for the theological truths contained within the works and talk about those things with people. If you're going to see a movie with your friends, look for elements of redemption or self-sacrifice or love or the afterlife, and then talk about these things. Right? We all love a good story, so let's look for the theological truths in these stories that we watch and read so that we can discuss those with others, especially those who do not have a relationship with Jesus. So that is my challenge for you as you go through watching things of fiction or reading books, to just take and discuss those things and themes that you learn within them as a vehicle to have these serious conversations with your friends. Well. This has been a fun episode to go through the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did, and I truly can't wait till next time. If you have suggestions for a work of sci-fi that you would like me to discuss, you can tweet or tag me in an Instagram message at Theology and Sci-Fi, all one word, and we spell sci-fi the correct way around here, S-C-I-F-I. Or you can go post to our Facebook page, Theology and Sci-Fi the Podcast, or you can visit uh, the website, um, which is up, which is actually... um, theologyandsci-fi.podbean.com right now. I'm still working on theologyandsci-fi.com. It should be coming soon. It's just I'm trying to get that up and, and, and working on that. Or you can email me at theologyandsci-fi, all one word, theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments or need clarification on something, whatever it may be, those are the ways that you can get a hold of me. And all comments, critiques, criticisms, all questions, all that, are welcome. So you can can send me a tweet, you can uh, hit me up on the gram or even on Facebook, whatever it may be. And this has truly, truly been fun. Thank you, and I can't wait to do it again. And remember to look out for episode four, which will be released January 28th, 2022, where I will discuss 2001, A Space Odyssey. And remember, I will answer the question, do aliens exist? You turn in, you tune in and listen to episode four, I will answer that question for you. I can't wait, and I hope you tune in. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout. Thanks for listening. It is good to renew one's wonder, said the philosopher. Space travel has again made children of us all.